Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 230 tonight. We are joined by uh, guest, special guest, Randall Carlson. We're going to be discussing Atlantis, the Younger Dryas Impact, and uh, some metaphysics towards the end. Uh, before we get started, why don't you check out Randall's website at randallcarlson.com. I have the link down below. He will be doing a um, uh, a live stream, a two-part live stream. The first one is that's uh, January twenty-seventh, correct? At uh, was it nine p.m.? All right, he's giving me the thumbs up. So January twenty-seventh, nine p.m. <laughs> on HowTube. Uh, you can find the links. I'll actually add the link down below after the video as well. You can find it on social media. I think I saw Graham Hancock uh, posted on Facebook as well, so you can go check that out. Um, and, uh, Randall also tweeted it. So if you are on Twitter, you can go check that out on Twitter. And, uh, he has a podcast. If you have not checked it out already, uh, Cosmographia, it's an excellent podcast. He does it with, uh, Russ and Kyle from brothers of serpent, uh, his buddy, Mike and his buddy Bradley. So if you have not checked that out, I highly recommend going to check that out after you listen to this episode or watch it either one. Uh, so before we get started, if you are interested, head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast for just $2 a month. You'll get exclusive guest episodes. We actually did one with Randall the first time we was, he was on. Uh, he gave us a lesson on sacred geometry. It's almost an hour long, so go check that out if you have not already. Um, and uh, we're probably going to do one again tonight. Uh, so again, uh, check that out later if you have not already. If you have not checked out our merch, head on over to our uh T public store, um, new designs. You can see there the Anubis one holding our logo. I designed that mind escape portal t-shirt. So we have tons of great merch. So head on over there. If you have not already, I have the link down below and Indra's web, Indra's web.org is the social media platform we created to connect open minds. Uh, so you, you want to speculate, hypothesize, theorize. It's a perfect place to do it. Go set up a profile. We are still working on trying to get that in the web, uh, uh app store. And one more thing, if you're interested, we are giving away this Mind Escape t-shirt. We only have larges and mediums left. Um, but if you want to win one, all you have to do is go to Apple Podcast, leave us a five-star review, take a screenshot of it, and then send it to mindescapepodcast at gmail.com. That will enter you to win. I will pick a winner at the end of February. So, uh, But without further ado, welcome on the show, Randall. Or welcome back, I should say. <clears throat> Well, thanks for having me back, uh, Mike. After you know all the trauma of my first visit, <laughs> um, I hope you guys are fully recovered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're getting we're getting okay. there. I, I'm not quite there yet, but I'm working on it. Another <laughs> another couple of months of therapy, though, I should be okay. Takes and, a hot minute. And know? I just want to give a shout out to Randall because listen, we were going to do this Wednesday night, and we were having some tech issues. We finally figured out what it was. We chatted for like three hours trying to figure out this dude is so generous with his time. He's not just an amazing researcher, but he's also a super cool dude. So I just want to give a shout out to you and your patience and everything and trying to work it out with me. So I really appreciate that. 
Oh shucks. Yeah. Should have just should have just posted that episode, the there real behind go. the scenes glimpse of what's going <laughs> on. They would have kicked us off every platform if that was the episode. <laughs> That's um, the juicy tidbits, baby. Yeah. Um so I thought tonight yeah, we would yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, sorry. Oh no, go ahead, Mike. What were you thinking? No, I was just saying I, I guess uh we will start out with the uh the old myth Atlantis, because I know you're going to be doing a big talk on it. We talked a, a little bit about it last time, uh, but uh, we did. I, you and I were talking off air, and I was telling you how I, after reading the um, uh, the dialogues, Plato's dialogues a lot, uh, and rereading them, I've kind of come to the conclusion it doesn't matter to me if it's real or not, because it does show what has happened in the past and what will happen in the future. So regardless if it was a real place or not, um, it's there's definitely a lesson to be learned from it. So, Yeah, I, well, there's certainly moral lessons to be learned from it. I, I see parallels between the, the tale of what was happening presumably, you know, almost 12,000 years ago and what is happening today in some respects. Although there are universal archetypes, you know, we can see those... Uh, they certainly come through in the Bible. People, you know, people of uh, the uh, Christian persuasion are going to see those parallels and quite frequently will be um, invoking them, particularly when you look at the book of Revelation. But I think there's a lot of things in that book that very much like, oh, let's say the uh, prognostications of uh, Nostradamus that, um, you know, they're open to a variety of interpretations. Um, and depending upon whatever preconceptions you come to the symbolism with, uh, might uh, might influence uh, the particular t- type of interpretation you would give to it. So, you know, I have I've read the the Book of Revelations many times, so I have my own interpretation of it. Um, and I've read Plato's Atlantis many times, and for a while, for quite a while, I was pretty much on the fence about well. Is this strictly a moral allegory or a parable of Plato's ideal socio-political state? Does it really matter if there was a physical Atlantis ever once upon a time? And my thought was, well, it would matter if there was a physical uh, existence of Atlantis at one time, because basically what Plato is describing is a a type of catastrophe that could be addressed in the context of geological change. Um, Mm -hmm. And because I study catastrophism, I I actually would call myself a catastrophist. A catastrophist would be somebody who studies catastrophes, the nonlinear events, those nodal points in what otherwise would be a continuum of change. And so, you know, the other subject we're Talk, going to talk about tonight a bit is the younger Dryas. So the thing is that you know younger Dryas clearly qualifies as a catastrophe. The interesting thing about this is that the the time frame in which these major events are um, are dated to have happened fits precisely with Plato's chronology. So that to me is something that well either it's a coincidence that um, you have this lineup of dates or um, or it's not a coincidence. Um, and I'm always the kind of person that I'm always on the lookout for coincidences as being signals that there might be patterns that one does not see 
too obviously, but the coincidence, the lining up of of data or events or or or, or things might be a signal that there's that there's more, you know, because at some point you get how many coincidences does it take before you know you realize okay this is not a coincidence this is actually a pattern. It's like what I what I've talked about for example with the three greatest uh, the greatest urban fire in American history. I'll ask you this a question see if you guys know this. What is the greatest most disastrous urban fire in American history? The Chicago Fire. I was going to say you that got as it. Well. I was going to say if 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 Mike doesn't get it, <laughs> um, I'm going to come and visit you and slap him upside the head. Yes, the yeah. Chicago Fire, greatest urban fire in American history. What about the two greatest, most intense forest fires in terms of just rapid destruction, uh, loss of life, and so on? Hmm. I bet you don't know that. It's not the most recent thing out in California, is it? No, 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 not even That's close. Nothing? Actually, <laughs> um, well, I'll, 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 and I'm citing this as, as an example of something that could be coincidence, but with a with a huge, however, in there. Okay, so let me say this: Chicago Fire uh, burst out very rapidly um, at about 9 p.m. on a Sunday evening on October 8th. 1871. And as far as all of the eyewitnesses would go, the the, the first conf- outburst of the conflagration that consumed most of the city pretty much all happened right around nine o'clock. Okay. The greatest forest fire in American history in terms of loss of life um, and acreage consumed in a very short period of time was the Peshtigo fire, which is in Wisconsin. It's right up uh, up along Green Bay, Wisconsin, right? And you have the Door Peninsula that goes up. You have Green Bay that comes down off of uh, Lake Michigan. And then uh, Peshtigo is right up almost immediately to the east, to the west of that Door Peninsula. Okay, so Peshtigo was a town that was destroyed in this forest fire. Hmm. And it was a hurricane of fire that swept pretty much swept down upon this area that uh, it started at the south end of um, Green Bay and then it swept up the peninsula and up the shoreline of Lake Michigan, pretty much wiping out everything in its path. Killed somewhere between 1,600 and perhaps as many as 2,000 people. And it destroyed like something like a million, 1.6 million acres in a matter of a few hours. It was wow. a... And and at some point I'm and I'm actually in the Cosmographia podcast that we're doing now. Um, I'm getting into a study, a discussion of this particular forest fire. Now, here's the coincidence. The coincidence is that from the eyewitness accounts of this particular fire, there had been some sm- small smoldering fires in the woods for days, but this was very normal for the great pine forests of of Minnesota. I mean, not Minnesota, but Wisconsin of of the 1870s, right? Well, it turns out that there was this sudden and tremendously huge conflagration outburst that pretty much swept in within a few hours. Again, like I said, wiped out a million and a half acres. From the eyewitness accounts, the conflagration burst out within a few minutes, one way or another, of 9 p.m. Sunday, October 8th, 1871. Now, if you go over to... So there's a coincidence. 
which most historical accounts that take note of this, oftentimes if you read up on the history of the of forest fires in North America, or and then you would get to the account of Peshtigo, they'll say, well, one of the more interesting coincidences of American history is the fact that the Peshtigo forest fire burst out at the same moment that the basically as the Great Chicago Fire. A coincidence. And if it's just those two events, yeah, we can leave it at that. It's just a coincidence. However, if we jump across Lake Michigan to the other side of the lake, Manistee, Michigan, at the time Mm -hmm. was a lumber camp. And there was a huge, tremendous, catastrophic forest fire there that burst out um, very suddenly, swept through over a million acres of the woods, um, and... uh, Wiped out a couple of lumber camps. There was not nearly as many people killed there, say, for example, as Peshtigo. But there were still people killed in similar acreage, similar intensity of fire, similar swiftness uh, of the onset of the conflagration. According to the eyewitnesses and attempting to pinpoint the the, uh, precise timeline of events, the conflagration burst out suddenly at about 9 p.m., October 8, 1871. So now we've got three events, three great fires, all igniting virtually simultaneously. My point is this. Now, maybe with two events, we can dismiss it as coincidence. Let's say we add three in. Now it's not so easy to dismiss as coincidence. And at this point, I think we're justified in going, okay, is there something else going on here? And the answer is, very possibly, there is. Now, when you look at the whole broad picture, it gets even more bizarre because as far as the historical records can confirm, that same Sunday evening, tremendous forest fires broke out in Minnesota as well. But they're not nearly as well documented because where these fires occurred um, was very sparsely populated. So Mm. Chicago, most famous of the fires, and of course because it burned up a city. And there were many, many survivors and many, many witnesses. Peshtigo, the problem was, is that many of the people that would have borne witness to this event got burned up in the fire. See? Now, across the lake at Manistee, uh, you know, there weren't that many witnesses. But it was still enough witnesses and and enough uh, burned-over forest area that the fire could be reconstructed, and it was a, a tremendously apocalyptic fire, just like Peshtigo. I mean, we... So uh... what's the explanation? So is there an explanation? Maurice, you're looking a little puzzled, and it is something <laughs> just... worth puzzling over. Yeah, I don't know. I'm waiting for the answers, my well, friend. I was going to say, we've been camping up along, <laughs> up and down the Manistee our whole lives, um, uh-huh. and uh, there's not a lot there now, so I can't imagine there would be too many people back then to... right. Right. Like I said, it was lumber camps. And uh, so, you know, we, there, were, there were lumbermen that survived, lumberjacks that survived that told the story of what happened. And um, very much the same, same type of deal as what happened across the lake um, when uh, Peshtigo burned up. Mm-hmm. So there may be an answer, but if you want to find out the answer to that, of course, again, it's only speculation. But so I was intrigued by that uh, particular coincidence and sought an answer to it. Others had speculated before me, so I 
drew upon their speculations. I think I've refined it and maybe added um, some uh, interesting and significant details to the interpretation. But uh, what I'm doing, guys, is I'm going to do, I, I did the first part on uh, my Cosmographia podcast. My last recorded podcast was my first delving in. And what I did then is I looked at the, uh, um, at a fire that occurred in New Brunswick in 18, was it 24, I think, 1824, that had all the earmarks of the Peshtigo fire and the Manistee, uh, Manistee fire. And the thing that I noted about that fire, um, which of course being that much older, you know, still had much uh, sparser records, but there was still enough records to show that it had all the same type of earmarks, the suddenness with which it, it, uh, expl it literally exploded. The suddenness, the intensity, everything, again, very much like the Manistee and the Pastigo fires. The interesting thing about that one was it occurred at about 9 p.m. on October 7th. Uh, 1824, whatever the, I think that was the year, 1824. Now, that's only one day earlier than the Peshtigo and Manistee in Chicago fires. So I definitely noted that the, the similar time of year. So in attempting to come to some kind of a, a meaningful understanding of what may or may not have happened, I began to have to think in terms of, well, that seems to be one consistent possibility is something that happens around that time of year. Hmm. So that kind of fueled my uh, speculations. And so I began to make a bunch of discoveries. I began to look into every single great forest fire that occurred in American history as a result of that. And one, another one was the great Hinckley fire in Minnesota in 1883. And I, you know, I grew up in Minnesota. And so if you look at a, a map, and I, I feel like I should pull up a map here and see if we can share the screen. I don't know if you guys, I love looking at maps when I'm talking yeah, absolutely. about. Well, let's see if I can do this without. Um, crashing the system. Without crashing the system. All right, let's take a look here. I'm going to. All right. So now I'm going to go back and I'm going to try sharing the screen. Window. Let's see if this works. Tell me if you see a map. I do. Do you want me to share it? All now I'm zooming in on the map. Are you seeing me zoom in? Yes. Hey, hey, this is a all right. It's working, folks. It's working. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we can look on the map here and you'll see Manistee right here on the eastern shore of Lake Michigan. And if we come over here, here's Green Bay. There's Marinette. Let's zoom on in. And right there is Peshtigo. Hmm. So you can kind of okay. get the geographic layout of this thing. So you had Peshtigo, Manistee down here, and Chicago right down here. So you had these three fires that broke out with near simultaneity on October 8th, 1871 um, at 9 p.m., right? And the Hinckley fire was not on that date, but if we zoom in here, you'll see there's Hinckley right there, Hinckley, Minnesota. Okay. Now, now we used to, when I was a kid, I was going to say, oops, we, one of the things we used to do was we used to go 
for recreation up to uh, the north shore of Lake Superior, which is up here, which is quite fascinating geologically. And you know, this whole, all of this terrain up here was a byproduct of the Great Ice Age and the meltdown, the great meltdown that occurred at the end of the Ice Age. Anyways, you'll see Hinkley there. So if you're driving 35, uh, Interstate 35 North, which of course, when I was a kid going up here, it was not an interstate then, but we used to drive up and oftentimes I would go with my grandmother uh, and grandfather and my grandmother um, used to like to, she was very much into history and liked to tell the story. And she used to tell me the, the um, story of the great Hinkley fire from 1883. And this is one of those fires that has the same type of uh, ferocity as the Peshtigo fire, the, the Manistee fire. And uh, so these fires, when, when you get into the, the, the details of them, they're, they're ex quite extraordinary. And like those other fires of 1871, the Hinkley fire of 1883 was also associated with the simultaneous ignition of a number of other very devastating fires. So that gets us back to the whole question of, coincidence or not coincidence. And so not to uh, try to um, um, de uh, deflect here from the, the, the basic questions that were raised by this is that I am covering the history of these fires um, in detail. Let me let this dog through here. I have dogs that always want to come through when I'm <laughs> They enjoy the show, too. They do. Okay. Now, this dog, of course, <laughs> is going to want to come over here. Come on and say hello to everybody. What do you guys... There's about 1.5 million people listening right oh, now. Oh, yeah. Totally. Yeah, and they're all dog lovers, too, so we're good. <laughs> and they're all dog lovers. Okay, good. So... I, it's like I at first when I was doing podcasts, I was like, I got to keep the dogs out again. But then every time they'd break in, there'd always be people that would go, hey, we like seeing the dogs. Yeah. 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 Okay, that's it. All right, go away now. <laughs> Stop annoying me. <laughs> okay, where was I? Um, so, yeah, I'm getting really into detail telling these stories about these fires. And at the end of it, See, I don't want to give away the punchline. You guys understand mm -hmm. about that, right? Right. What mm -hmm. I like to do, and people, some there are some people who get mad at me for this, but what I like to do is I don't like to necessarily give away the answer. Sometimes I do, right at the front end. I'll say, okay, this is where we're going. Other times I like to go, well, I'm going to lay out this chain of evidence, and let's see where it goes. And let me see if you, the listener or whoever, comes to the same conclusion that I do after looking at this evidence, or come to the, some of the same uh, possible interpretations as I do. So um, it's kind of that way with, with the fire. I have a, let me put it this way, I have a surprise ending. I have a few, I have a few plot twists in there that I don't yeah. really want to uh, destroy the, the, the impact of the story by giving away the plot, plot twist. You know what I mean? Sure. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm chomping at the bit, so... <laughs> Okay, well, it's free. All you got to do is <laughs> sign in and watch it. So, uh, and and yeah, and it'll. I have you know a lot of maps and graphics. And what I did see back in 1996, I worked on a documentary that was being funded by the now uh, defunct Turner Broadcasting Systems, TBS. Back, you remember? Were you guys yeah. old enough to remember TBS? Oh yeah, absolutely. So, 
Okay. Did they morph into somebody else, or did they just I think it's still TBS. Is it really? Yeah, it's on basic cable, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, okay. So anyways, (laughs) um, I I worked on a a, a documentary with them um, that was basically about impacts from things from space. This was in 96. It was when Shoemaker-Levy 9 uh, had just happened a couple of years before, and then Hale-Bopp was now, the comet Hale-Bopp was in the sky. And so there was a lot of sort of fervor and interest in things like that. So uh, I got with a local production company, and we put together a a documentary that was shown on TBS, and then a follow-up was shown on CNN. And over a period of the next couple of years, I think it was shown half a dozen times maybe. I don't remember, but um, quite a few times, and it showed all over Europe. And uh, I think the last I heard was like 20 million people had seen it, something wow. like that. So, Amazing. so yeah, an impressive number back 90s. Well, it actually first aired in March of 97. On, I think it was March 24th, which was the day, coincidentally, that uh, Hale-Bopp made its closest passage to Earth. So Hale-Bopp was in the night sky, the closest day that it was going to come to Earth, and, we, and, this, uh, and this documentary uh, uh, showed uh, that, that night. So anyways, um, one of the things that I got into in that particular documentary was talking about these fires. And was it a coincidence or was it not a coincidence? So I, we, I went with a film crew to Peshtigo, Wisconsin, and I went to the um, Peshtigo Fire Museum there and had a long conversation, which was documented with the, with the curator of the museum there. And he gave me access to a lot of unpublished eyewitness accounts, which I made photocopies of most of them. And some of those subsequently have found their way into print. Uh, he was, I don't remember, his name was Robert somebody. I mean, this is 96 that we were there, so I've forgotten his name. I should rewatch the documentary. But anyways, he's since passed on. There's a new curator of the Peshtigo Fire Museum. And uh, I'm guessing that some of this stuff that, that I accessed back then, uh, was privileged to access, has probably made its way, you know, some, for all I know, some of it may be on the internet, now maybe online, but in 96... You know, I mean, who was on the internet? It was right. just just getting started, right? So, um, as a result of that, I had a lot of a lot of this material that I've put into this presentation that I've I've done, oh, maybe half a dozen times over the last twenty years. But then I've updated it uh, with some new interesting evidence and things that have come out that may throw. Uh, new light onto some of these fires, particularly since we've had some fairly catastrophic fires in recent times, in the last few years. Um, so anyways, in in doing this whole, we're up to pushing episode 80, something high 70s now, the Cosmographia podcast. And I covered pretty much in depth the evidence for great floods and, and, and deluges and do- dove into some of the worldwide myths on great floods and things like that. Um, and then got into the geological evidence for gigantic floods. And what's interesting there is, you know, there have been floods that have been, uh, that I would have to call biblical in scale. Floods that wipe out 
huge, vast areas of of uh, uh, land, such that any survivors could easily think that essentially the world had been destroyed. Um, and when we get slight segue over into talking about the Younger Dryas, we'll get into some of that. We'll get into some of those specifics of that, what I think of as this great transitionary phase between the Pleistocene and the Holocene, the, um, the um, what you'd say, the Paleolithic and the Mesolithic, the um, the period called the 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 transition from the Baling Alarod to the Younger Dryas climate. It's called the term is chronozone. Like you know, chronozone is basically that you know during this transition from glacial to interglacial age, there was a whole sequence of these climate changes. Mm-hmm. So in order to talk effectively about them, you know, the climatologists, the glaciologists, and scientists of that ilk have given names to these different episodes so when you hear the term younger dryas that implies that there was an older dryas Mm -hmm. and there was in fact an older dryas and his name's maurice so and i'm dry (laughs) so the younger (laughs) like i say it's it's younger dryas not younger dry ass yeah. <laughs> okay. So I'm sorry. I apologize for that, but I hear people no, pronouncing it that way sometimes. Okay. So, so Maurice isn't triggered from that comment. Oh no, no, mm-hmm. he's good. Oh, okay, yeah. good, good, good. Maurice is cool. You can say whatever you want. Yeah, I, I, I take a beating from everybody, <laughs> especially my family. So. Okay. So <laughs> I not. my. What I was getting at here was that I, I've really dove deep into the whole, the flood myths and then the geological evidence for these gigantic floods. And we can take a peek at that, you know, in our conversation tonight, if you'd like to, because certainly they are associated with the Younger Dryas. In fact, one of the episodes of catastrophic melting seems to associate directly with the onset of the Younger Dryas that is now dated to 12,850 years ago. Interestingly, and I get this, guys. This is a segue. Before I make that segue, I'll just jump in and back a little bit, and I'll say, so I, I've, I've looked extensively at the evidence for these great floods, world-destroying floods, what, what the ancient Greece, Greeks referred to as cataclysm, where we get the word cataclysm from, originally meant a, dis, a watery destruction, right? Destruction by water, cataclysmic, right? right? specifically meant destruction by water. And the Greek term was cataclysmos, cataclysmos, right? They had a counterpart, which was destruction of the world by fire. And you maybe you've heard, you know, the idea that the world has been alternately destroyed by fire and by water. If you look at the Bible, right? Book of Genesis recounts the destruction of the world by water, the great flood of Noah, Mm -hmm. etc. The book of Revelations at the end Basically, if you read that, I mean, it's destruction of the world by fire. So you've got the whole biblical narrative is bookended by these this this bimodal world destruction process, right? Uh, the the Greek term for fire was for destruction of the world by fire was ekperousis, the root of that that word being pyro, meaning you know fire, you know a pyromaniac is somebody that. Light obsessively lights fires, right? So, mm-hmm. cataclysmos, destruction of the world by water, ekperusis, destruction of the world by fire. So, 
back to the podcast, I've been really going in and exploring in depth this the whole phenomena of world destroying floods and deluge, mega floods, right? Now I'm shifting over and I'm going to explore and have just started. I've got one full podcast now where I'm diving into some of the really unbelievable specifics of what happened during these literal firestorms. They could only be described in a sense as like gigantic tornadoes of fire. In fact, the fire that burned up Hankley in a matter of minutes back in 1883, the fire column was seen from Duluth. Now, some of the investigators have looked at it and said, well, how is that possible? Because if you're looking at south from Duluth to in the direction of Hankley, if they are seeing the fire column, the fire column has to be at least five miles high. Hmm. How could that even be? But there were multiple witnesses up in Duluth that said they could see the fire column the, what, as it's destroying Hinkley. So that's what I'm getting into now in the, in the Cosmographia podcast. I'm laying out the stories. I'm pulling up the eyewitness accounts. I've got the maps, the graphics, photographs. You know, there were no photographs available taken during the fire, but there are photographs taken in the aftermath, particularly the Hinkley fire. And, I mean, the devastation is is about as complete as you possibly could get. I mean, where you had thick forests with 200-foot pine trees, right, two and three foot thick at the, at the uh, diameter at the base, and now you see these pictures of where these forests stood, and it's just barren nothing. Literally, in fact, the fires were so hot in some cases that the roots, the thick roots of these trees that extended into the ground, 8 and 10 and 12 feet, were literally consumed. And it just left the the, the hollows where the roots had been were just ash. Mm. So uh, it's pretty amazing stuff. So that's what I'm getting into in the Cosmographia uh, right now, is, is addressing those fires. And... Getting into, is there an explanation for the coincidental timing of these events? Or is it just a coincidence with no further meaning or significance? Hmm. And I leave it up to the listener to make that decision. However, the evidence that I'm going to lay out, I think, strongly suggests it's something far more than mere coincidence. Okay. So... Looking forward to that. Oh, yeah, it's a little tickle with a feather, you know. Especially since it's uh, near our territory <laughs> up in northern Michigan. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, which we and did. Still, I think we. I think we did talk about some of that stuff last time you were on the mastodon glyph at the bottom of uh, the stone oh. circles, stone circles yeah. near the the Huron Straits and the stone circles in Travers Bay with the mastodon carved into it and. Mm-hmm. I think we did discuss some of that stuff last time. So I, I love talking did. about Mich- There's a lot of cool stuff in Michigan. Obviously, um, you know, you have Detroit and then you have the rest of the state, which is just beautiful, you know, wilderness for the most part. Yeah, I, so. I have been across Michigan, but I haven't really dallied. I haven't really explored Michigan. However, I, I want to because it's, I mean, what went on there at the end of the Ice Age and during the Younger Dryas and things is, is pretty significant. Uh, you know where Grand Rapids is? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Grand Rapids is in Grand Valley. And Grand Valley is a gigantic meltwater produced sluiceway. In other words, the whole valley was filled to brim, was carved, was excavated by these giant 
meltwater discharges coming off the catastrophically melting ice sheets. And that's ultimately, when we talk about these, these biblical scale floods, um, we're talking about catastrophically rapid ice sheet melting, at least in one case. The other case that we find now that, that uh, nature can produce uh, biblical scale mega floods is through impacts, uh, hypervelocity impacts of asteroids and or comets into the ocean, which produces tsunamis. Um, one of the recent papers that I've been reading has been about evidence. You know, I lived in Louisiana, central Louisiana, for oh, about four years of my growing up years. And um, I didn't know this, of course, back then, but there's a limestone layer under, it's like under half a mile of sediment, under, all goes all the way up to northern Louisiana. And there are giant ripples that are imprinted onto this. And they're probably some of the largest current-type ripples that have ever been documented. And that is a legacy of the tsunami that washed over what the southern United States area uh, as a result of the Great Cretaceous Tertiary Impact. And are you guys familiar with that? You know, the dinosaur impact, the one that, mm -hmm. that, that wiped out the dinosaurs, right? Chicxulub well, or Chicxulub? Chicxulub, yes. Chicxulub. It's centered... Chicxulub, and uh, in fact, I bet that documentary. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it. It's called. Uh, was it called Visitors from Darker Worlds? Is that what it's called, Maurice? Uh, yeah, I, th I think I don't know. I, I, I we, that was been a while since we watched that bad boy. Yeah, what was who's the director? The guy Grizzly Grizzly Man. Oh, uh, Warren, or uh, what's his name? I think it's called, oh, it's Fireball, Visitors yeah, from Darker up, Worlds. Here we go. Okay, are you guys seeing this map? Yes. Here, I'll pull Good. it Good. Right here. Cheekshalub, right here. You see yep. it? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to zoom out so you can kind of get the perspective. Warner Herzog. That's yeah, it. yeah, Warner Herzog. There you go. Okay, yeah. If you haven't seen that documentary, Randall, I, I recommend it. It's called Fireball, Visitors from Fi Darker Worlds. Fireball. I'll check that out. It's on, really uh, well done. Yeah, it's on Apple TV. But they go through. You know, they go to the uh, Australia and some of the Aborigines have these oral traditions that talk about the the rainbow serpent, which is obviously mm -hmm. referring to uh, you know, sure. asteroids and meteorites and stuff like that. Yeah. So that impact. Well, at least one of the impacts. There may have been multiple impacts. I think that there was a cluster of impacts around the KT boundary, but. We won't get into that discussion necessarily, but it's centered right here just north of Merida is the main town, but you have to zoom in to see uh, Chicxulub. I had it, now I lost it, but it's right in here. It's a very little town. Yeah. Um, but this gives you the, the overall perspective on where it was. So there was a huge tsunami that went to the north and washed up, like the, the, um, the evidence for these for current ripples is in the limestone, in the bedrock, all the way as far as northern Louisiana, Monroe and Shreveport. Hmm. And so that was tsunami. I grew up, my four years of living there was in Pineville right here, which is along the Red River. Now, the interesting thing along the Red River is, let me go here to um, terrain, go to terrain view and see if it shows up. Well, it'll show up in satellite view. Okay, if we zoom in, you can see the modern Red River. Uh, 
But when I zoom out, I want you to look at this lighter area because this lighter area is de is is where the darker area is all forested. In the lighter area, there's a lot of agriculture. But mm -hmm. that lighter area defines the meltwater sluiceway, the conduit of huge meltwater flows during the deglaciation period. So you had this tremendous flow that came down this way, and it met a tremendous flow that was coming down what is now the Mississippi River Valley. I'll zoom out here, and you can actually see how wide this trough is. Oh, wow. This is literally, this is literally, was a, a, a meltwater, a gigantic meltwater river, a very temporary affair, but it is the water that you can go back up to here. And there was a major, see, Lake Michigan here is a trough. So you, mm -hmm. the basin of Lake Michigan is basically carved first by glaciers and then deepened by meltwater that came down through here. And if we go up here to Lake Superior. So what was the latest that Michigan was covered in, in ice? Because as I mentioned to you the other day off air, uh, they just found that 13,000-year-old Clovis campsite uh, where they found bones, and that was in St. Joseph's County, Michigan, which is the southern, western, southwestern part of Michigan. Um, Down here. Okay. So what— Well, what, so, what, yeah, by, by, by younger, driest times, the, the full extent of the glaciers had receded back. Um, it, it, the climate actually began warming between 14 and 15,000 years ago. So as a result of that, the um, the glaciers begin to recede. They begin to shrink uh, from their maximum extent. Because at their maximum extent, the glaciers came all the way down here almost to the border of Kentucky, Indiana, and Illinois. And that border is now formed by the Ohio River. Let me ask you this. When I, when I toggle between satellite view and map view, are you guys seeing that shift? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. Great. Okay, that's that's good. Okay, so so that was almost the the southernmost extent of the ice was really almost down here. By the onset of the Younger Dryas, it had receded back up into the area of the Great Lakes. Now, the the thing about the with the onset of the Younger Dryas is that Younger Dryas was this sudden, very sudden, rapid, extreme. Um, return to full glacial cold. So in other words, if you go back to between 14 and 15,000 years ago, we're right getting at the end of what is referred to as the late glacial maximum, mm -hmm. meaning that was the coldest that it was and the largest that the, that the ice sheets were. That began to shrink back. And as it began to shrink back, um, the climate was warming. And then the thing that was significant about the Younger Dryas was you had this sudden reversal in this sort of gentle warming trend that had been underway for a millennia and a half anyway, into full glacial cold. Now, the terms that we use, younger dryas, and then like I said before, older dryas, refers to the uh, a wildflower called dryas octopetala. Now, dryas octopetala um, is a polar flower, and it really likes the cold weather. So it was... It was very prolific in northwestern Europe during the depths of the Ice Age, and, and, and then it disappeared. So what happened was it disappeared during this, this, this time interval that's referred to as the, the, the Baling Alarod, during which the climate was warming. So the older Dryas was when that 
those polar wildflowers were present in northern Europe, unglaciated, unglaciated northern Europe. Then what happened is the ice began to recede back and the polar wildflowers disappeared. So the younger Dryas is when they suddenly returned again, you see, which marked the transition from this warming period back into full glacial cold. And now here's where it's going to get interesting. And not that it's interesting already, but um, when we talk about the Younger Dryas, the Younger Dryas was about 1,300 years in length. So it lasted from, in round numbers, say 12,900 to about 11,600 years ago. Now, at 14,600, it's now been documented there was a gigantic meltwater pulse and warming spike uh, that occurred right around 14,600. That was followed then by this gradualistic warming. That was punctuated by the onset of the Younger Dryas, but that cold was also accompanied by a very short-lived period of intense melting. Then it went back into full glacial cold, and the ice began to expand again until the date of 11,600. At 11,600, there was a major shift um, again, and it was accompanied by a, a huge warming spike, like literally 8 or 10 degrees centigrade in a few years, right? And in, in a minute, I can actually pull up some graphs and show you how dramatic these warming and cooling spikes were. But this event is associated now with a sudden rise in sea level, which uh, a number of geologists who were studying, uh, you know, the the rise in sea level during the deglaciation phase, had a term they called it catastrophic rise events, and or CREs, catastrophic rise events. There was a catastrophic rise event at fourteen thousand six hundred. There was apparently another one at the Younger Dryas, and then at the beginning of the Younger Dryas, and another one at the end of the Younger Dryas. Mm. The oldest one, 14.6, has been called, referred to as Meltwater Pulse 1A. The one at the end of the Younger Dryas has been referred to as Meltwater Pulse 1B. The one at the beginning of the Younger Dryas has not been given a name because it's only more recently documented. But here's where we get into another interesting coincidence. And people who do the kind of research that we do, we should always be on the lookout for coincidences because coincidences are sometimes the signal that there's more here than meets the eye. So in this case, here's the signal. The dating of that Meltwater Pulse 1B is now the date given for the transition from the two and a half million year long geological epoch known as the Pleistocene into the modern geological epoch, the Holocene, which has seen the rise of civilization, right? It's seen the domestication of animals, the, 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 the transition to sedentary lifestyle, agricultural-based rather yeah, than... Gobekli Tepe, which is 11,600 years old. Yes, 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 exactly. Now, if we take that and we now look up, say, in any geological book or article talking about the beginning of the Holocene. It's now dated 11,600, right? Years ago. Now we go to Plato's account of Atlantis. We're going to turn, we're going to shift over to the Plato's account of Atlantis. 
And you're sitting at the Socratic Forum. You got a picture, you know, you've got the, the beautiful columns and, and lintels there and the probably nice Corinthian columns and, you know, a lot of marble and, you know, the gang is sitting around. You got uh, Socrates, Plato, Timaeus, Critias, maybe one or two more. They're all sitting around hanging out. Socrates says, you know, everybody's going to tell a story, right? Some story in which they can, in you know, they can use that as an illustration of some deeper, you know, moral or metaphysical meaning. Plato is sitting there. He's taking all this down, right? So Critias there says, well, I'm going to tell an old world story that I heard from an aged man, which in fact happened to be his grandfather. Now, this is Critias the younger who heard the story from Critias the elder, his grandfather, and who heard it from, was it Dropidas, who there's a succession that goes back to so yeah, we figured out it was four generations when we were talking the other we day. did we yeah. did four generations right and then plato would have been number five so it goes back to solon the the egypt the the greek statesman poet lawgiver philosopher etc who sage sure sage who uh sojourned in egypt for 10 years and while in egypt he was told the story of Atlantis by an aged Egyptian priest who said, Solon, you guys, you Greeks are like children because you don't really remember the deep past like we do. You only remember one flood. We remember multiple floods. And he says, we remember the greatest action that your predecessors ever were engaged in. There was a great war. And he goes on to describe the war between the Atlanteans who came forth from an island out in the Pacific, in the Atlantic, west of the Pillars of Heracles. They invaded the Mediterranean, began to enslave and subjugate everybody, right? So now the priests tell Solon this happened 9,000 years ago. Well, Solon went to Egypt in 600 BC. So do the math. Okay, so, so let me stop you right there, real quick. Um, so why, when we're looking at this, we all want to talk about, you know, uh, the Critias and the Timaeus and all of the, you know, the parts that reference Atlantis, and that's where we get a lot of our information. But how come people aren't really looking into more of, I guess we'd have to find something in ancient Egypt, like a papyrus or some sort of hieroglyph, but why aren't we looking there since that's where it comes from? It doesn't actually come from Greece. So why are we so obsessed with it being a Greek thing when actually it was more of an Egyptian thing. Well, I would say that when it, you know the, the the Egyptian priest, who according I think it was Plutarch, <clears throat> gave a name to the Egyptian priest. I think it was Sanchez. Yeah, Sanchez uh, of Sace. Yeah, so Sanchez told the story, but he said you know he referred to the ancient registers of nine thousand years ago. Now, let's let's consider. Plato gave us two accounts, two in his two dialogues. Um, Timaeus and Critias. So we've got that. I mean, because we have access to what happened in Greece uh, at the time of Plato, 23 to 2400 years ago, right? Now you consider that in the centuries post Plato, you had, for example, the destruction of the Alexandrian Library. It's mm -hmm. estimated that there were 500,000, half a million volumes of ancient lore 
in the library that got destroyed. It was destroyed twice or a few times, right? Yeah. Like the first yes. time was uh, Caesar, they think, or Caesar's burning of boats and the 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 uh, um the shipyard or something along those lines. And then I was watching some movie called Agora about. Uh, I forget her name, the first Greek... Uh, Hypatia. W- yeah, Hypatia, the f- first Greek woman philosopher. And in that movie, they show how uh, the the library of Alexandria there was also burned, or they burned all of the papyruses there, the, the, the Christians and the um, mm-hmm. people that were against all of the old ways and stuff like that. So, Yeah, the fin- the religious fanatics. And then you had a similar-sized similar, similar sized library at Carthage that was also burned and destroyed. Mm-hmm. So between the two, you're looking at what almost a million volumes. Who knows what was in there? Yeah, I don't see what that's I, right now. This is not to say, Mike, that there isn't stuff out there waiting to be discovered, and I hope like hell there is. Right, <clears throat> because there's enough. There's a few tantalizing clues to suggest that Plato was not the sole source of the story of Atlantis. Okay, but the references are very obscure. But to me, they do suggest that there were independent uh, accounts of Atlantis. Um, I mean, it was Plutarch, like I said, who, who, who mentioned that Plato does not give the name of the priest who relayed the story. So if Plato had access to that information, would he not have disclosed it? Um, why would it have had to have been somebody else? account that provides that detail right. unless perhaps they had access to some traditions uh independent of plato see okay but we so don't re- know real quick i'm going to steel man the the academic view of atlantis being an allegory and then you can re- rebut what i'm saying um so academics would point to the fact that it talks about the Atlanteans fighting the Athenians. The Athenians didn't even exist uh, in that time frame. Um, that would be number one. Number two, Plato wrote most of his stuff is allegories, or you know, even if you look at the way he writes Socrates into things, most certainly Socrates didn't meet all these people that lived in different times. It was almost mm-hmm. a reimagining of what Socrates and his philosophies, how he would have approached having dialogues with these people is pretty much how it usually goes down. Um, Mm -hmm. so that would be another thing. And just, uh, the fact that nobody's ever found anything, you know, a civilization in terms of like structures and the way it was described with the metals and all the different things, uh, based on Plato's accounts. So what would you say? Those are like the three main ones I usually see academics point to is why it's just an allegory and not really an actual real physical place, or at least was. Okay. My response would be that I absolutely think it was an allegorical on the part of Plato. However, the question is, did Plato draw upon a completely imaginary contrivance for his allegory, or did he draw upon something that had uh, actual, we would say, historical or historicity to it? And I don't think the one uh, excludes the other, that he would have drawn upon a real tradition to concoct his allegory. And I think that's exactly what he did. I don't can't prove it, um, and I'm willing to change my thinking, but I think that this would be a good reason why people should actually tune in to the six hours of concentrated analysis. There we go. 
looking at Plato's two dialogues through the lens of geology, geography, oceanography, astronomy, and so and mythology, um, to see if there is a place geographically that does more or less conform to Plato's details. And, you know, there have been many, many locations proffered for Atlantis over Azor Islands. Yeah, that's what we were talking about, the convergence of those tectonic plates. I know you guys did the Cosmographia, and a few years ago when we first started diving into it, that seemed the most plausible based on the descriptions. And if it was a real place, that's maybe where it would have been, and it would have maybe been above sea level pre-Younger Dryas, you know, so I don't know. Yeah, well, see, up until the 1970s, uh, most uh, most Atlantean proponents of some kind of literal Atlantis, using Plato's accounts, were led pretty much right to the Azores, right? But then what you had in the 1970s is you had a, a number of geologists looking at it and basically said that this was implausible. In fact, one of the books that I'm referencing in the talk coming up is a, uh, was published in 1978, um, one of the authors and editor of the book was Dorothy B. Vitaliano, who was actually a highly respected geologist back in the 70s. The title of the book was Atlantis. The title of her, her contribution to the book was Atlantis from the Geological Point of View. And it was, the book was entitled Atlantis, Fact or Fiction. Uh, and this is what she says. Inasmuch as all references to Atlantis stem from Plato and no other source, which is a comment that's mostly true, but not entirely, okay? Right. In, in deciding whether it is fact or fiction, or to put it another way, whether it is legend or myth, we are faced with three options. We can take everything Plato says quite literally. We can take his words seriously, but not literally. Or we can take Atlantis as purely and simply his invention. And then she goes back uh, and refers to the book published in 1882 by Ignatius Donnelly. Now, have you guys ever heard of Ignatius? Oh, yes. yeah. Sure. I figured you had. He wrote a book called Atlantis, the Antediluvian World. Um, so Dorothy Vit- Vitaliano says that since that book is still being sold in bookstores everywhere and has provided the basis for numerous other works, it is desirable to explain why his literal interpretation of Plato's description is utterly inconsistent with modern scientific knowledge. Donnelly outlined 13 propositions, in support of which he then proceeded to marshal all kinds of evidence. Yes, he did. I've read the book. He did marshal all kinds of evidence. But then she goes on to say, she, she acknowledges that, okay? She then goes on to say, though, that only two of these propositions are relevant to a geologically oriented discussion. And here's proposition one. That there once existed in the Atlantic Ocean, opposite the mouth of the Mediterranean Sea, a large island, which was the remnant of an Atlantic continent and known to the ancient world as Atlantis. Proposition two that Atlantis perished in a terrible convulsion of nature in which the whole island sunk into the ocean with nearly all of its inhabitants. 
She then goes on to say, after laying out those two propositions and then basically setting up the scenario that the remaining 11 propositions uh, in which Donnelly proceeds to lay out his arguments in terms of all this other evidence that he's collected, that if the two geologically oriented propositions are invalid, it invalidates everything, Mm -hmm. right? So now she goes on to say, in light of what is known today about the ocean floors, we can definitely rule out the possibility of a sunken landmass of any substantial size in the Atlantic, or for that matter, in any other ocean basins. It has now been established from the speed at which earthquake vibrations propagate through the Earth that the material of the Earth's crust underlying the continents is different from the material underlying the ocean floors, which is absolutely correct, right? Right. But then she says, nowhere in the ocean basins is there any sign of a large mass of continental-type crust which could represent a submerged continent. Okay, so with that, she says that basically with an Atlantic site ruled out as physically impossible, all arguments based on racial, linguistic, or other cultural similarities on both sides of the ocean, which would include the rest of Donnelly's 13 propositions, must collapse. Either they are not real similarities at all, or they must be explained in other ways, including mere coincidence. So, having considered the various possibilities, let us return to the original question. Is Atlantis myth or legend? I've tried to show that an Atlantic site, and with it a literal interpretation of Plato's description, is ruled out by our present knowledge of the sea floors. The very best we can do is to grant that Plato might have derived some of his ideas from Minoan Crete in one way or another. But such a derivation is far too roundabout for Atlantis to qualify as a legend which presents a distorted view of an actual event. From the geological point of view, I fear that Atlantis must be considered just another of the myths of Plato. Now, this was written in 1978, okay? And so, She says that what we now know about the ocean floor, we can definitely rule out. Now, she uses the word continent, which is misleading, because Plato uses the Greek term nesos, which unambiguously means island, island, Mm. right? Now, so I think using the term continent is misleading. But anyways, I'm going to jump ahead, like, to the 2000s. Here's from 2010. This is from the site... of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And I think it kind of throws this whole question into a different light. And it, I think it pretty much negates everything that Dorothy Vitaliano was claiming about that we've got this exhaustive knowledge of the seafloor that would allow us to categorically rule out anything like a sunken island. Here's what it says. This is from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration website. Like the rest of the deep ocean floor, we have explored less of the mountains of the mid-ocean ridge system than the surface of Venus or Mars or the dark side of the moon. Hmm. Use of submersible or remotely operated vehicles to explore the mid-ocean ridge has provided information on less less than 0.1% of the mid-ocean ridge. 
much of the mid-ocean ridge still remains a mystery, and we will continue to explore it. And then, jumping ahead to two, November of 2019, uh, an article that appeared in The Economist, right? under the heading of their subsection called Journeys, The Last of the Great Explorers. The ocean floor is the Earth's last great uncharted region. Oliver Franklin Wallace joins the man descending to the bottom of the deepest trenches on the planet. So my point here is that we didn't know enough in 1978 for Dorothy Vitaliano to categorically declare that we knew enough to say that there couldn't be a sunken landmass. Right. What about like uh, what's going on at like Tonga? You know that eruption that just happened. Um, something even larger than that. Uh, is that a possibility at some point? I think somebody was mentioning it in the comments. Um, My answer to that would be hell yes. And then like even they, I, I saw a National Geographic. <laughs> documentary i don't know how many years ago but they were speculating the timelines were off and maybe santorini uh and thera uh would have been atlantis but obviously i don't think well you that... heard you heard in the thing that i read she was mentioning minoan crete and that is the most right. and, and if we go back to her um her comment about the three possibilities where she says um we can take everything plato says quite literally that's one possibility. We can take his word seriously, but not literally. And so in that category, we would have places like Minoan Crete or Terra, you know, where, the, where Santorini and that eruption, or, you know, as has been proposed recently by Jimmy over at Bright Insight, the, um, the recat structure in Mauritania. Yeah, that, yeah, one is, that one I think that's a collapsed Maybe. volcanic dome, isn't it? Yeah, actually, if anybody's interested in the geology, it's a very interesting place. Um, and I think it could be connected with the Atlantean story, and I'm going to get into that a little bit in the uh, in the uh, the the live stream that I do. But I did do I think it was episode nine of the Cosmographia podcast is devoted pretty much to a geological consideration of the recat structure in Mauritania. Isn't the and I remember I think history shift when he made that video went through. I think the stadia is off though, and all the measurements and the descriptions don't align with that specific site for what Atlantis was. Um, and obviously it's in the middle of the Sahara, which, I mean, yeah, you could say maybe it was underwater, but I don't think it was underwater at least for millions of years. There are, there are limestones exposed in it that are uh, Cretaceous limestones that are 90 million years old. So 90 million years ago it was underwater for sure. Right. Okay. Um, That's one thing we do know. <laughs> Yeah. So uh let's There's see a bright here. insight for you. It's <laughs> my middle well, name, baby. You know, overall I you know, I, I like what Jimmy's doing. Um, you know, he's he's he, you know, he's bringing this kind of information to a lot of people who would probably younger people especially that are hearing some of this for the first time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I so told you my only, just... my, my only criticism was he just released a video on like e- ancient Egyptians using psychedelics and entheogens and just some of the stuff he was talking about was misleading, like as far as blue Lotus and the effects of it, uh, oh. DMT, the acacia in Egypt is actually, doesn't really contain DMT. That's usually more in Australia and South America, those strains. Uh, and there's just certain things where if you actually do research on entheogens and psychedelics, you can easily, uh, okay. Arrive at the conclusion that maybe there's some liberties taken there, but 
Are you seeing this? I pulled up the recat structure. Yes, I will pull okay. it up. Here we go. All right. So if you should look I make at this, this full screen? Should I make sure? Yeah. Might as yeah. well. What the hell? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I'm showing here. Uh, Get Maurice out of there. Bye bye. <laughs> okay. So I'm showing here that the recat structure is like you said. It's a, it's a a dome, a volcanic dome, and. Um, so I got into this. I, I really analyzed this. I'm not going to do that now. But yeah, there's a whole magma reservoir below that would have extruded its way to the surface. Um, and what I'm going to do is, is and, and this this part of it, I don't know how much of this I'm going to cover in the, the live stream because I've already covered it in the Cosmographia. But sure. I use Plato's, uh, Plato's dimensions um, for the circular, the ringed city. And to scale, which is the stade, which is 608 feet in ancient Greece. And here to the same scale is Plato's ringed city juxtaposed upon, um, juxtaposed upon the recat structure. So you can see the, the size is, is way off. It's right. very different. Oh, I mean, look, visually, um, yeah, it looks so like just, based just... on the physical description, yes, it looks like what you yeah, would imagine sure. or you've seen recreations or digital uh, art of it and things like that. I definitely, but when it comes down to like actually doing the research and lining things up and everything, I mean, it just, uh, you know, I don't know. I think it's been. Yeah. Now I'm going to, you know, I will definitely, and I have no doubt that somebody, when I do the live stream, you know, there will be a chat and people will be asking about it. So I'm going to be prepared to get into it somewhat, but I'm mostly going to be referring people uh, to episode nine of Cosmographia, where I spend two hours getting into it. And I don't want to spend two hours, um, you know, out of the three hours I'm going to be doing uh, for part one on, on that, because right. um, I have a lot more stuff. So, but my point is that, okay, so in 1978, here's what happened. The geologists such as Dorothy Vitaliano decided that, you know, the third option was the most likely. Atlantis factor fiction, it was fiction. There was a possibility, though, that the second option, um, that, that um, uh, you know, she uh, concluded was that it was uh, not literal, uh, but still important. Um, you know, how did she put it again? Uh, you recall. Anyways, the, the, the first option was that you tip, take it literally. The second option was, um, as she said here. Myth or um, legend? Is that what? Uh, first option, we can take everything Plato says quite literally. Mm -hmm. Okay, then the second one, we can take his words seriously, but not mm -hmm. literally. Which is basically, that's the, okay, if... If an Atlantic site is ruled out, but we take his his account seriously, but not literally, let's look for it elsewhere. And that's exactly what happened after the 70s is when you see this huge proliferation of all these other sites being proposed for Atlantis. And if you look before the 1970s, you find that most of the uh, studies on Atlantis, books on Atlantis and so forth, pretty much stuck to a literal interpretation of Plato's account and ended up looking in the Atlantic Ocean for some rem remnant of Atlantis. Then, post-1970s, when the geologists uh, pedantically declared uh, 
categorically that they could rule out an oceanic site for Atlantis. Then you had basically two things. People said, yeah, we told you so that Atlantis was just purely and simply Plato's invention, so don't waste your time even looking for a literal Atlantis. Or you had a group of researchers that said, okay, but let's say that his, we take his word seriously, but not literally. Where else should we look to try to find parallels with Atlantis? And so you had Antarctica, you had the British Isles, you had uh, the Celtic Shelf, you had Bahamas, you had Cuba, you even had southeastern United States, you had Mauritania, you had uh, um, Turkey. Uh, I'm trying to think of how there was a whole bunch of areas. You had, of course, Crete. You had uh, Terra, the island of Terra, which sank because of the great volcanic eruption. So basically, in every one of those uh, alternate locations, one or another of Plato's details had to be changed. Okay? Um, like you mentioned, as far as Minoan Crete, uh, what had to happen is that the timing was changed, right? Also, we had to conclude that Plato didn't really mean outside the pillars of Heracles, because if you're talking about Santorini, you're inside the Mediterranean. So then the pillars of Heracles had to become somewhere else. And I, I, and that has been brought forward by a lot of people who've said, well, it was really, you know, making the argument that it was Santorini. But that's been pretty much debunked. That what about a mistranslation of, of something flawed? Like Herodotus's map of that area is not really that clean, right? It's not as accurate as what we know today. So how, like, what if it, there was an interpretation going on that was just, they just didn't have the kind of technology that we have now so maybe we've been looking in the wrong place based on our interpretations of their interpretation. Well, I mean, we have a pretty good understanding of the Greek that was being spoken and written in Plato's time. Right. I mean, you know, we have exhaustive academic studies on... on but I'm talking various... about like the physical, since their, their like actual maps are skewed, like how, like how accurate do, you know, Herodotus' map is, it's not bad, but it's not that accurate. Well, I guess I'm not really seeing the relevance of that to this issue because well, I'm saying because if you're saying between the the pillars of Hercules or Heracles and you're mentioning uh um interpretations of it, I'm just saying like in terms of maybe they had a different idea. Like it gets passed down telephone, right? The Egyptians tell Solon, Solon passes it down and we're getting a game of telephone going and by the time it gets to Plato, maybe some things have been skewed is all I'm saying. Yes, but in this case, there's multiple other references to the pillars of Heracles besides Plato. Right. That's that's the thing. Um, so yeah, and, and they all basically put it at the same place, you know, which is in the rec in the area of the Straits of Gibraltar. Um, I will just quote this right from, and you know, I don't put all that much trust in Wikipedia, but on things like this, they're usually going to be pretty right because I could go to Encyclopedia Britannica or any number of other sources. It'll tell me the same thing. Here's Pillars of Her Hercules from Wikipedia. The Pillars of Hercules was the phrase that was applied in antiquity to the promontories that flanked the entrance to the Strait of Gibraltar. And that is not based upon you know, one or two vague references. It's a whole, there's a whole body of of evidence showing that that in ancient times that the Greeks thought of the pillars of Heracles as what is now the Straits of Gibraltar. Okay. 
Okay. What about southern Spain? I know that the Donana National Park was tossed around for a little bit. I think it was Matt from Ancient Ar- Architects that did a video on it a while back. I don't know if he's still considering that, but there was these little like circular, I don't even know if they were man-made or not, but they looked pretty interesting. But just uh, Spain's pretty close to there. Oh, yeah. yeah that was a cool Spain. one. Yeah. Spain, Portugal. Well... I tell you what, let's, you know, pull up the map again. Um, so, we'll I mean, is the, share... is the Bimini Road just thrown right out the window at this point, or? No, no. Yeah, we've had um, Dr. Gregory uh, Little on, who's scuba dived or dove off the coast of uh, there and taken pictures, and we've shown those pictures on here before. They're, I mean, is that a, do you think that's a natural formation, the Bimini Road, or do you think that that's man-made? I don't have an opinion. I, okay. I, I don't categorically reject the possibility of it being artificial, um, but I do know from geological studies and my own, my own geological research is that you can have rectilinear fracturing and faulting in rock. It depends on the type of rock. I haven't looked at, look, you know, the bedding planes. I haven't looked at the geology of the Bimini Road it, to have an opinion on that. Um, so it could be, I'm not going to say yes. I'm not going to say no. And what about that pyramid off the coast of Cuba that they call the Cuban pyramid? Uh, it's underwater. I think they have sonar, um, scans of it. Um, and his theory, Dr. Gregory's theory was that, that it might be some sort of infrastructure from when they were building up all like the missile stuff on the islands around there during like the Cuban missile crisis and stuff like that. So I don't know. I I was just curious if you, if you knew about that area at all i don't otherwise but i will say this i i expect that we're going to find a lot of stuff um you know in that zone um that was the the near coastal zone during the ice age because Mm. remember you got to keep in mind during the ice age sea levels are as much as 400 feet lower so you've got vast expanses of continental shelf that were above water that would have been really the better place to settle for communities to form during the ice age is, is next to sea at right at sea level. And so, you know, if there were villages, communities, even urban areas, they would have been wiped out by the right, the rapid rise of sea level at the end of the last ice age Mm. for the most part, but maybe not, you know, because, you know, if there was a pyramid built close to sea level, say 12 or 13,000 years ago, maybe we'll still find it. The mm. problem is, you know, there is a lot of, for example, when with the rising of the sea level, there was uh, a lot of instability along the coastlines and you had major mass movements of material off the continents into the oceans. Um, and so a lot of the continental shelves that were exposed and, and to use the term, uh, the geological term, uh, sub-aerial, as say opposed to as, as contrasted with submarine, meaning under the water. Subaerial means under the atmosphere, but uh, exposed to the atmosphere. So, what happened is with the rapid rises of sea levels and the the major meteorological and climatological changes that were associated with this transitionary phase, you had a lot of instability on the on along the coastlines, and these huge mass wasting events. So. If you've got like a huge landslide down into the rising sea, if there was something there that wasn't destroyed by the the, the pounding surf of the rising sea, 
it might be buried under hundreds of feet of mud and sediment. And I wouldn't even problem. You don't even have to take crazy liberties and say, oh, there was actual pyramid there. It could even maybe even be a Native American mound. Like maybe that was just a civilization, Native American civilization before, uh, you know, the flooding or whatever. Right. I would tend to think it would not be a mound for the simple reason that um, that um, mounds are built of earth. And a stone structure is going to be much more capable of surviving a rapidly rising sea level than a than an earth. So you think a, earth a mo- mound would just or earthwork would just get? Yes, earthwork would get pr- washed away. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what I would recommend, Mike, is that all of the questions you've asked are really good questions. Now, I can't speak specifically about a submerged pyramid off the coast of Cuba. However. What I am going to be doing is looking in depth at the whole geological question. I'm th- I'm saying and arguing that it's time to circle back and reconsider the geological analysis of the whole story, um, with with the uh, assumption that the geologists in the '70s were premature in their dismissal. Uh, of there being a geological explanation for Atlantis. That's basically where I'm coming from. Yeah, none of the academics will take it seriously even now. I mean, there's a lot of, you see it on Twitter, they say if you even look into it, it's racist or uh, it's pseudoscience or nonsense. They've all got different explanations. Yeah, and my opinion is I have nothing but contempt for that kind of academics because, first of all, if I go and I look at Plato's account, and I've basically read through four or five different translations, including the slogging my way through the original Greek, right, to try to get to what he was saying, then looking at that through the lens of geology and astronomy and, and sciences, empirical science and geography, oceanography, I can say this, a lot of those academics that are dismissive of Atlantis, have never even read Plato's account, and don't know a damn thing about geology. Right. And, and no offense, so, a lot of them are just art history majors that, you know, like you mentioned, don't they don't know, ge- you know, there are some that do know geology, but for the most part, I found that a lot of them are just art history majors that think that they're the next Indiana Jones. Well, there's a lot Jones. of stigma that yeah. surrounds Atlantis at this point. Yeah. And listen, I love art history, but come on, that doesn't qualify do too. you to... Right. No, I know. Well, that's right. why it's funny when you see like, okay, like uh, there's things I disagree with that, that Robert Schock brings to the table, but then there's, he's a geologist. So if he's telling you this is, you know, water erosion and you're an art history major, what do you have to offer to that conversation? Do you know what I'm saying? So zip. Right. Nothing really. No, nothing. So yeah, I mean, that's my problem is that, I, you know, I say, to me, there's a lot of pseudo-academics out there, you know, that basically you have an established point of view, right? And now you have people coming up, entering into the profession, and what they want is they want the recognition of their their superiors, the the established uh, people who are in that particular discipline. And so if there is an established framework, if there's a dogma, they know that their entry into their into the academy is through their acceptance of the dogma. And that if you challenge the dogma, well, you're also going to 
uh, jeopardize your acceptance into the club, if you will. And that's what it is. It's a club. And you, you come in and go, oh, Atlantis, yeah. <laughs> all these new age. Woo, so, so, you know, so but like, as I, it. as I mentioned before, though, like, I think it's an allegory and I think it's an, it's a powerful story. And it's, it's almost like the allegory of the cave to me, the allegory of the cave. And I told you this off air, and I've said this many times over episodes, people that listen to our podcast regularly might be sick of it, but I think all metaphysics come from either entheogen, psychedelic use, or altered states of consciousness. How, because in normal state of consciousness, you don't really think that you know about metaphysical things because of ideas that have been implanted over time, but where did those come from? And I think that they came from these powerful experiences where people were shown that there's more to life. There's more than what's going on. And Plato's cave, as I mentioned, could have been him participating in the Eleusinian mysteries. And in Eleusis, there's the Plutonian cave. He could have walked over to the cave, been having a, you know, a psychedelic experience, and, and thought, man, this is groundbreaking stuff, and then came up with the allegory of the cave. Now, this is just me reimagining history, but I see that as poss a possibility. Same thing with Pythagoras being able to visualize geometric shapes, Euclid being able to visualize geometric shapes, Socrates coming down from an, a trip, and most people that have had psychedelic experiences understand that when you come down you start to become very introspective you want to get you know you want to get on the right track you want to get your life together you want to be a better person mm -hmm. look at his morals and his uh, ethics and the way he talks about these things you can i can equate all those things not necessarily just to psychedelics but altered states of consciousness so mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. that's where i you know for me i think a lot of that stuff um comes from but again when we're talking about atlantis this is a, Atlantis is a powerful story because we know cataclysms are real. I mean, there's that new movie that just came out that people are talking about. Don't look up with the the comet coming towards Earth, and you know everybody's acting like an idiot and not doing what they should do. Um, and same thing with you know if we're told, hey, this is going to happen. How many people are going to get on board? How many people are not going to believe it? How many people, you know? So it just comes down to this this powerful story that it, it makes sense in, in terms of our history and our future and it doesn't matter to me if it's if atlantis was a real place now if they find that physical evidence yeah that's interesting I'm, I'm all on board you know but i'm not um like i said i'm not necessarily worried if it's real or not because it has the same value to me if that makes sense it makes sense and i'm with you right up until the last part whereas i conclude that if it was real then it it has tremendous increase in value because it is part of of a corpus of catastrophous literature that I feel is profoundly important for us to begin to understand uh, the authentic history of, of this planet. Because up until this point, for most of the 20th century, strict gradualism prevailed. Um, all change occurred one grain of sand and one drop of water at a time. That was still the dominant paradigm when Dorothy Vitaliano wrote her, her essay on Atlantis. It was not until the next decade that, that this straitjacket of strict uniformity and gradualism began to release its stranglehold on, on uh, you know, the earth sciences. So to me, what that has done is it has what we now know about the catastrophic history of this planet has also opened up the doors to a new discipline that's referred to as geomythology and the idea that the myths that have come down to us contain real geologically valuable information 
uh, about events that have passed happened in the past and and referring earlier to the to the stories of the great floods you know i mean we're we're pre- presented with a a conundrum here when we when we realize that completely disparate cultures that presumably had no connection uh in 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 history have very similar stories about gigantic world destroying floods how do you explain that yeah you know there've been a number of ways to explain it some that go down to just you know psychological things that we you know oh there was you know the typical story and it has its parallels with some of the some of the interpretations of atlantis being uh uh not literal but ser- a serious uh, re- uh area of inquiry that for example the the biblical flood is basically a memory of a great flood that occurred on the Tigris Euphrates Valley at some point, you know, four or 5,000 years ago. And in the telling and retelling, it got blown out of proportion. And then when the Jews were, um, you know, exiled, they, um, they picked up the story and brought it back. And uh, it just got, it, it got, you know, it, it got exaggerated in the telling um and then it became it was grafted in simply as a device for uh making moral assessments of the behavior of humanity because again the biblical account like many of the other accounts um sees the flood as a type of divine retribution for the sins of mankind that mankind was you know misbehaving and had to be wiped out and this is similar to what you find with the the story of Deucalion in the Greek myths or the story of Utnapishtim or the story of Zisithrus. Then you come over around the other side of the world and you're in North America and you discover that, you know, dozens and dozens, maybe even over a hundred tribes of Native American people had stories of a great world-destroying deluge. Well, then you go to, now you have two, two extremes of interpretation. On the one hand, well, it was just a local or regional flood. It was bad, but it got really exaggerated in the telling and retelling. On the other end, you've got this supernatural event that completely drowns the whole world. You don't need any kind of a rational scientific explanation for it because it's just God's handiwork. He's punishing the earth, so you have this huge supernatural flood. It drowns the entire world up to the highest mountains, and then the water all mysteriously disappears somewhere. So those are the two ends. Now, halfway in between that, you have uh, mega floods that have been measured in hundreds of millions of cubic feet per second. What does that actually mean in terms of what you might see in the real world? Well, if you were lucky enough to be in a place that was in a region of 100 to, to let's say, 500 million, six, seven, eight hundred, some of the floods that we know occurred that swept over North America and even over Northern, Northern Europe at the end of the last ice age, these floods were measured in hundreds of millions of cubic feet per second. Now, if you look at... Um, say the Pacific Northwest, where some of the most spectacular flood-produced features and landscapes that exist in the entire planet, there were flood flows that peaked at maybe 800 million cubic feet per second. Now, what does that translate into? Well, that translates, if you look at it this way, if you think of every single river on Earth, every bit of flowing water, think about all the great rivers of North America, from the Mississippi to the Missouri to the Columbia, 
to the Hudson, to the Connecticut, to the Yukon, to the Mackenzie, go to South America, the Orinoco, uh, the Amazon, go to Africa, the Congo, the Nile, you know, the Yellow River, the Po River, the, the, the you know, all, the, every river on earth flowing together, all together at one time, wouldn't even be one-tenth mm. of some of these meltwater flows. I just showed you a graphic where you could see this, where this massive water came down from, from the Midwest and created what is now the Mississippi River Valley. Right. Right? So here's the thing. If you were somehow lucky enough to survive an event like that, and somehow, you know, by whatever means, and interestingly, the the legends that come from all over the planet are very similar. There's basically three ways people survive. One, they're, they're lucky, and they manage to get to the top of the highest mountain. Two, in an, a great an arc. Now, in a lot of the Native American legends, they talk about the great canoe that people survived in. Third, they climb a great tree, and they're able to ride out the waters of the flood and the branches of some extremely pow big, powerful tree. Right. Those tend to be the three most ways that people survive. Well, there are places where I visited. There's a place called Stepto Butte in eastern Washington. Stepto Butte is a volcanic cone that rises up out of the rolling Palouse about 11 or 1200 feet. The entire Palouse at, during the Great Meltdown was submerged underwater, maybe up to a couple of hundred feet deep. If you were standing on top of Stepto Butte during this flood, which you probably wouldn't survive, but let's say you, you could. If you looked out during this flood, what you would see would be raging, boiling, roiling, muddy water choked with icebergs and huge logs because entire forests were being ripped up. And you would see this in every direction as far as the eye could see. In the aftermath, when the flood was finally over and you're standing there looking out onto the landscape, the pre previous ex landscape that was there prior to the flood is completely gone. Mm. It's either completely erased or it's buried. And what you would see in the aftermath is you would look out as far as the eye could see would just be rolling mounds of mud with thousands of icebergs stuck in it, probably logs that had been ro uh, you know, rolling along in the floodwaters. And as far as you could see, that's all you would see. You would see no remnant of humanity. Now, you might have other survivors 100 miles, 200 miles away, but you have absolutely no means of communication. You have no way of contacting anyone. So now you come down from your, from your mountain peak, and what do you know? My, the whole planet hasn't been covered by that flood, but your whole world has been. Your right. whole world that was in that region before the flood is now gone. And so now, and in fact, the model that is emerging for the great disruption of the human species throughout the Younger Dryas seems to be pointing directly to an interpretation where you have pockets of survivors. And these survivors were undoubtedly isolated from each other for centuries, if not millennia. And it would have taken quite some time for these pockets of survivors to repopulate their world, their region, and eventually contact others um, that had survived likewise. So, and now, this is not an implausible model. So what was going on where Gobekli Tepe, in, in uh, Anatolia and Turkey, what was going on where Gobekli Tepe was at the 
that time period at the end of the Younger Dryas, 11,600 years ago. Because a lot of, you know, researchers, especially alternative ones, will speculate that this was like a meeting place after the Younger Dryas or maybe a place of regrouping or relearning. You know, there's a lot of that kind of uh, speculation. And then obviously academics would just say that they're just hunter-gatherers that eventually learned, you know, to somehow (laughs) uh, relief carve or whatever. Why would hunter-gatherers undertake a monumental enterprise like that? And how would they get the resources? I mean, look, when you undertake a project on a scale like that, you've got people, you know, like all of these enterprises, you know, if you've got, if you go to whatever it is, the building of a temple. Now, I don't know if you guys have been to Egypt and looked at some of the temples, but you have to have, you have, you will, you have to have a prosperous civilization to support. See, that's a prerequisite. You have to have the, the population to create, to support the whole infrastructure of, of, of workers and, and um, craftspeople and skilled laborers and stuff that are carrying out this work. Because they look, that's the point. You got hunter gatherers. What we all the models of, of prehistoric hunter gatherers are small tribes from a few dozen up to a hundred people. You know, they're they're they might they're migratory. So they're usually following moving according to the seasons and according to the herds. If you're gonna undertake monumental architecture, you have to have a settled community with enough food to support an army of craftspeople to, to, to undertake these things. I mean, to me, the, 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 the disconnect there is so pronounced. I can't see how a serious academic could say they think that these ancient structures were produced by hunter gatherers. Right. You know, what about, so do you think that that's when we domesticated ourselves? If you think we even domesticated ourselves, because, um, do you think it was like a situation where, Man, we're wiped. This this flood thing. Let, let's just set up shop in one place and try and regroup. Or do you think like what do you think was happening? <clears throat> well, yeah, I think that you know if you had pockets of survivors, and I, I I would think that you know looking at say let's say a modern counterpart of a of a catastrophe on the scale of the Younger Dryas, our civilization is is gone. It is. It's gone. A, a, a catastrophe on the scale of the Younger Dryas event would erase our modern civilization. And it would, for the most part, push, put most of humanity back to a very subsistence level of survival. Okay. Now, if you look at the myths, one of the things that the myths, one of the recurring themes that you hear over and over and over again in the myths is this, that there were either the sole survivors or survivors that weren't the sole survivors, but did survive because they had some kind of foreknowledge. I mean, if you look at the story of Zisithrus or the story of Utnapishtim or the story of Deucalion or the story of Noah, all have this consistent idea that they were given forewarning by some entity that knew a whole lot more than they did and was able to tell them that there was going to be this great water watery catastrophe and you better get your shit together and build a boat because mm. this is coming. So that's consistent. Then we go over to Native Americans and you have, oh, the ancestors of this or that particular uh, Native American group were forewarned by coyote. And so they built a great canoe. How did they get that? Well, the, 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 aver- the academic 
uh, answers that, well, they must have heard that from missionaries, Christian missionaries, and grafted it onto their uh, particular theocratic worldview, their theocracy. But the problem with that is there's overwhelming documentation from early explorers, uh, people like George Caitlin, the Indian artist who spent time with Native Americans. He was the first white person that they ever saw, and he heard those same stories from them. So they didn't get their stories from... Now, they may have heard stories like that from missionaries and then said, oh, yeah, that's just like our stories. And that mm. undoubtedly happened. But no, they, they had an independent tradition that they had been preserving and handing down for who knows how many generations before the arrival of Christian missionaries. So I mean, I always saying, wondered, I always wondered too, though, to, to point that you're talking about like Noah's Ark and stuff. How do we know that that wasn't influenced by like the Epic of Gilgamesh and like the Sumerians? Because the Christian Christians or early Christians, there's a lot of symbolism, icon, you know, icon, um, icons, and I can, I, I, iconography. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't say I didn't even want to try, but, uh, <laughs> uh, there's a lot, there's a lot of symbolism that, that bleeds into Christianity or that Christianity took from the Sumerians and took from the Egyptians, even like the Lord's prayer to P Todd. Sure. There's a lot of stuff that's taken. Like, how do we know that that flood myth wasn't also taken? And it's similar to like Plato. Well, it originated in Egypt, but uh, you know, it actually became like a Greek thing. Well, okay, I'll address that by saying that that's essentially, again, uh, a diffusionist idea, the idea that, yeah, it all stemmed from this over-exaggerating a local flood. That's basically what that would imply, what you right. just said. And what I'm trying going to say is, without a doubt, even the Middle East uh, bears the imprints of gigantic floods, gigantic floods. Um, you don't have to go... Now, I'm not saying that... that the Judeo-Christian account wasn't heavily influenced by other accounts in the same right. way that, you know, a Native American tribe... So it doesn't matter. Story. It's all the same thing, even though it might have been passed down or interpreted a different way. It's still coming from sure. the, pr the primary source. Right. And and the primary source, might there may have been multiple dispersed sources for flood events. I mean, because mm -hmm. there were, we, we can say without question, there were gigantic floods in North America at the end of the last ice age. People who lived here would have been dramatically affected by those floods and would have had every reason to preserve stories about those floods. I mean, let's face it. If you, Mike, were the survivor of an event that wiped out civilization and you were living with a small group of survivors from a few dozen to a few hundred, and you start re trying to you know repopulate and you have you have no way of communicating. Now let's say we I'm saying let's say we have a repeat to the younger Dryas. Well, if you were lucky enough to survive the Younger Dryas, Mike, you might be in a group of people that you had no under, no awareness of what's going on in the outside world. You have no awareness of what's going on in the rest of the world. You maybe are the only survivors. Maybe the whole world has been destroyed, right? right. But would you not consider it of the most critical importance that this story of what happened, is passed down to your children oh, and to their children and to their children. Absolutely you would. So it, it, it is not some bizarre conclusion to, to, to draw that groups of people would all essentially ex who, who experienced events, traumatic events on this scale would not perpetuate stories that are now find their way into the, the common mythical heritage of mankind. Because we can't, we cannot explain the Native American stories of the flood 
by saying it was diffusionist. Really, I mean, right. not we at least not in the sense that we would <clears throat> say, well, the Jew the Jews got their story from you know from the Sumerians or whatever. You know, we maybe they did. I think they probably did to some extent, right? But you can look at the Middle East, you can look at Egypt. I mean, there's abundant evidence in Egypt of gigantic floods. I mean, there is there is freshwater mollusks that have been found 120 to 100 feet above the modern floodplain of the Nile. This is enough to pretty much submerge the Giza Plateau. There are also saprolitic, gigantic uh, plumes of saprolitic muds that were washed into the eastern Mediterranean, and those muds can be dated. And the dating of these muds, the most recent deposits, uh, show them to be right around this younger dryest period. And in some of the wadis that, for example, that uh, that they bouche, to use the French term, that, that opened, that their mouths are into the Nile Valley, some of those wadis have boulders in them that are 20 and 30 feet in diameter. And that's, that's the wash that came mm. out of this wadi. A, a normal water flow such as we've experienced in modern times is not going to transport a 20 or 30 foot diameter boulder. So what I'm getting at is the geological evidence that we're now beginning to see with with better eyes because of modern technology, satellite fo- photography, ground penetrating radar, LIDAR, aerial photography, all, you know, all of this stuff is disclosing that all over the world, Mike, is yeah. evidence of gigantic floods. Well, how many Mayan civilizations have they found with LIDAR in the last like five years? Probably, I mean, there's there. been like six sites, yeah. I think, like six major sites. Yeah, that nobody even hardly knew about. It was just in the jungle in like Guatemala yeah, yeah. and different places. Yeah. yeah. Yes, that's right. And um, recent studies, I, I reported on some of that in our Cosmographia newsletter on findings that have just been published in in uh, Central America, Mexico, Southern Mexico. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean it, it, all this stuff's fascinating, and I mean, like, look, I think I think it's crazy that there's even pushback that this was even. A possibility and that it was like some long drawn out slow thing and you know over hunting or whatever you know like all these other explanations and it's like you know even your buddy graham hancock stuff keeps getting older and how long you know he said uh clovis first has been done and people still talk about that as the oldest people in america but we know that i think there's a cave in chiquahite mexico where they found 30,000-year-old stone mm-hmm, tools. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm. that site in San Diego. There's like all sorts of sites all over uh, North and South America. We've had Gregory Little on talking about these super old Native American mounds in South America. I mean, there's just tons and tons of stuff to point to where it's like, what are we doing? And yeah, I mean, eat- it's only a matter of time until the, the evidence overweighs the, the skeptics, I think. Yeah, I would have to agree with Maurice on that. And I think we're, we're seeing that happen now. And the problem is, is, you know, entrenched points of view. And now, you know, we kind of talked that we weren't going to get into politics, but there is a political dimension to all of this very, very clearly. And, you know, I, I'm not afraid to get into that, but we're probably not the venue for that tonight. Other bro, than say bro, that, you better not get well, into it, bro. Tread lightly, my friend. No, I'm just, we don't talk about <laughs> politics on this, but uh, yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying. Look, you know, anytime there's programs at stake and money at stake and books mm-hmm. at stake and all this stuff. Like the thing that, that really we've talked about a lot on the show is like, um, you know, Thomas Kuhn, the philosophy of science, the structure mm-hmm. of, the, of scientific revolutions, mm-hmm. stuff like that. And it's like, 
what what is science doing where they pretend to be scientists but then they think whatever they're discovering at that moment is going to hold up 100 200 300 1000 years from now it's not mm-hmm, it's either right. going to be debunked changed altered replaced whatever you name it i mean the only person i can think of that's really stood the test of time and it hasn't even been that long is einstein but I'm sure Einstein will be, you know, at some point we're going to figure some stuff out and it's going to be like, well, that was a good shot, but you know, well, it depends this, on what this is, is what gravity is, you know? So well, if it's, the, if it's, if it's rooted heavily in math, it's hard to debunk it, you know, when it's speculation and things like that. Then... Well, that's just it. We're talking about archeologists and I mean, geology is obviously a hard science, but when you're talking about archeology, span I mean, that's a humanity and you're dealing with people interpreting different things based on um, not exact sciences. I know hat, they you know you can test soil samples and date certain things and but you can't date stone and you can't date um, you know you can't do certain things like you can do in biology and become a little bit more empirical with the stuff. So I think that that's I, like I said, I just don't understand how they don't understand that. Why do they think that they're, this never you can't question their authority when it's really not even that empirical so well i would answer that question but since we don't want to talk about politics <laughs> i won't answer other than to say uh, listen it w- the answer to your question gets into politics my friend sure mm-hmm. so no i get what you're saying it really does um, i mean you were yeah, talking no. earlier about the extinct the mass extinction of megafauna well, that certainly has political implications oh, yeah we were talking about that off air the other day i, I know um, yeah. yeah, I mean, like I said, or we just... the idea that, uh, you know, that the climate can have catastrophic upheavals all by itself without any help from us whatsoever. Right. Yeah. That's that we're the victims, not the perpetrators. See, that's, that's a politically unpalatable idea right now. That so... we would be the victims instead of the perpetrators. So let that sink in. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely So I just wanted to touch on a little metaphysics here at the end, and then if you have enough time, we can do like a short Patreon segment. But um, so in terms of, we were talking, well, actually, before we get into that, earlier we were talking about everything being destroyed by fire and water, and I don't know how you feel about this, but we were going to make a T-shirt called Xerxes Fires and Water, Oh My. Uh, Because if you look (laughs) at ancient Greece, everything was either destructed uh, by Xerxes fires or like all the temples mm. and all the, you know, the different things, water, fire, and Xerxes were pretty much the main, uh, destructors of ancient oh, Greece. Man. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, yeah, I think you should probably go ahead and make that yeah, t-shirt, Mike. You go. <laughs> With Xerxes, you know, yeah. big old letters. Maurice really hates Xerxes. It's fun so. to say his name. Okay. No, well, but for, 480 it... BC is, uh, that was a bad uh-huh, year. Yeah. Well, I wear a three extra large, so we're gonna we'll send one your one. way, no doubt. Yeah, absolutely. I would, I would wear it on the Cosmographia podcast. All right, you got well, one coming your way, my man. Yeah, you, you know I'm gonna be dialing that up tonight. So. Michael's a, okay. a t-shirt gene uh, guru. I'm actually wearing this one. I designed. I don't know if you can see it. The Portara. Fill that screen, baby, but don't knock over your uh, setup there. Ooh, look at that. What is that? I I, uh, digitally drew at the Portara of Naxos. Oh, okay. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. See, uh, you asked if we've been to ancient uh, Egypt. We have not. I would love to go to ancient Egypt, but I actually want to go to ancient or ancient. I want to go to Greece first, 
then Italy, then Egypt. Those yeah. are my my uh, yeah. go to. I would love to go to ancient Egypt. At this point, I do not yet have access to a time machine. Yeah, so I'm exactly. Gonna have to be content with modern <laughs> Egypt. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can go in our minds. You know, is that where you would go? Yeah, exactly. Hypothetically, time you did have a time machine, or Doc Brown popped out. What? Where would you go? Well, I would want to. I, you know, listen. I lose sleep at night. Work trying to f- understand what happened during the Younger Dryas. But my fear is that if I set the, <laughs> set the time machine for 12,900 years ago, as soon as they hit 12,900 years ago, I'd be obliterated. Yeah, you pop in and get demolished instantly. But yeah, that would be my fear. So I don't know. I mean, I've got a lot of areas of history that I'm interested in. I might just go back to the 1950s. <laughs> yeah, All I might right. just go back to 1965 uh, I- and see what's going down. Oh yeah, I could take. Listen, I was around in 1965. Then <laughs> we'll all hang out with. Yeah, we had you on last time. I think you. I don't know if you specifically mentioned the dead, but we did talk about your early psychedelic experiences and how they influenced your passion for these topics and things Ooh, like that. We talked about that. Yeah, we did. Part one, folks. How did yeah. you guys get me to talk about that? Oh, bro, we we what got did you ways. Guys do? We got oh, ways. Okay. Gave you some cool. Uh, but but so, oh. uh, if you mentioned you did see the dead in the early day, like sixty nine, seventy, somewhere around there. Oh hell yeah! I saw him about five or six times between nice. sixty eight and seventy three. Right you know, when, when they were in their prime, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're not old enough to have seen Jerry, but he's definitely. We have two guitar heroes, Jerry Garcia and Trey Anastasio from Fish, and. Uh, oh okay. We got to see Trey a bunch, but we've never got to see Jerry. So. So you listen to any of the old dead albums? Oh, d- dude, yeah, se- 72, Europe 72 is my favorite. Uh, okay. I'd say 70, 72 and then 77 are my favorite years okay. probably. You know, they, they you know, I, I, of course I have a fondness, particular fondness for some of their early, like first four or five albums, which were very experimental. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And their attempts to capture in music what they were experiencing with psychedelics. And and then, you know, they kind of did this interesting flip there in 1969 when they came out with Working Man's Dead. Oh, yeah. Which is kind of like they they pushed the bounds of music to the limit. I mean, as, as some critics have said, they were making, you know, exploring areas that a lot of bands or most other bands didn't even know existed. And you can kind of, you know, I certainly got an experience of that in some of their live shows, you know, in the late 60s. Um, cause everybody there is drinking the Kool-Aid and probably including the dead and they're just taking it as far as they can go with it, you know, but it comes through a lot of it comes through in their, uh, first live album, live dead, the double yeah. dark star, uh, yeah. St. Stephen. Um, yeah, there's yeah, a, those, um, that, that stuff. there's a documentary you should check out. It's called Anthem to beauty and it details uh, their making of Anthem to the sun and American beauty. And it shows how they go from mm-hmm. that experimental stage where they're literally, they go to the desert, record mm-hmm. desert air and use that as the backing track for their album. Um, mm-hmm. And it shows them in the, you know, the studio and they're doing nitrous and blowing Coke and taking psychedelics and doing all sorts of stuff. Um, uh-huh. And then it shows them going into the making of American beauty and they wanted, you know, the Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young showed them how to harmonize and sing. And they kind of showed Crosby, Stills and Nash how to play their instruments a little bit better because uh-huh. obviously it was vice versa. The dad never had amazing voices. They had good voices, but right. they were amazing voices right. and uh, Crosby, Stills could, wasn't as good of musicians. So uh, but yeah, there's, that's very interesting. 
Because, yeah, I mean, you definitely see that they start really harmonize American Beauty. They're really, they're harmonizing in there. Yeah. You don't hear that. But I've always thought Anthem of the Sun was kind of like a quintessential psychedelic trip album. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's out there. Yeah. That's for sure. It yeah, is. I mean. Their old psychedelic stuff is right now. I think the only other thing I can think of, like, different band-wise would maybe be. Pink uh, Floyd. Yeah, Pink Floyd Echoes or Metal, I guess, is the album that it's on. Mm-hmm. Uh, that well, that that, <laughs> that live at Pompeii is probably my favorite Pink that's Floyd. Amazing. Thing. If you've never seen live at uh-huh. Pompeii, they're literally playing in the amphitheater at Pompeii to nobody, and they're all tripped out and they're just wailing. It's, it's are we talking Dead or Pink Floyd? Pink Floyd. Pink, Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd. Okay. Yeah. Do you guys familiar with, remember the band Quicksilver? Yeah. Yeah. Messenger Service. Yeah. 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 Now they're. They did what I think of as, as the other quintessential psychedelic trip album, which was uh, Happy Trails. Mm. And they do an extended version. Uh, you know, it's I think it's mostly live. It was recorded at the Fillmore West, where everybody, of course, is drinking a Kool-Aid. Yeah. But, you know, if you've done some tripping, you know, trails. You know, remember trails? Yeah. Tracers. You know? These are the trails that are being referred to now. Happy Trails was the song, um, the theme song of Roy Rogers and Dale Evans. Until mm. we meet again, yeah. Until we meet again, happy trails <laughs> to you. Keep smiling until then. Well, okay, so this is like, if you listen to the whole album, the whole album is a trip. And then at the end of it, when you're coming down from the trip back to the normal world, it's they, you know, they conclude with happy trails to you until we, until we meet again, keep smiling until then see happy trails. But yeah, I mean, they go out there and I have, I did catch Quicksilver once in concert and yeah, like the dead, it was almost like there was a competition going on back then to see who could push the bounds the furthest. Sure. And I think that Quicksilver, The Dead, and Pink Floyd were probably the three premier bands that, that I mean, there were a lot of bands that really explored sure. um, that whole altered state of consciousness through music. But yeah, yeah Live that Dead. Stuff, that stuff's reverberated down through American music. Absolutely. Yes, it has. And then, of course, I mean, look, The Beatles. I mean, when you right. listen to The Beatles' early, almost bubblegum type music, and then you get to um, Sergeant Pepper's and A Day in the Life with the mm-hmm. orchestra. Or you get to, um, which album was She's So Heavy? And you listen That's, to that. Uh, Abbey Road. Abbey Road, yeah. So, I mean, you listen to the that compared to their early, you know, bubblegum type stuff. And you go, oh, my God. <laughs> I sometimes, some younger people that didn't, you know, don't really understand experientially what the 60s were about i say all you got to do is listen to the beatles music yeah you know or you know the dead because the dead it's it's almost like you look at this period sort of you find it you begin to see the first stirrings of in 65 but it's definitely by 66 you see the influence of that whole milieu of psychedelic everything touching everything from from music to art yeah. to fashion to literature, even to scientific research. 66, 67, really, you know, 67 was the summer of hate Ashbury. And the, well, I don't you know, know if you've read a, summer a, of love. Electric Kool Aid yeah. Acid Test by Tom Wolfe, and it accounts the whole yes. Ken Kesey and the yeah. Merry Pranksters with the Grateful Dead. And, yes. 
Yeah, yeah that's a great yep. book. Yep. Um, but, but that's, yeah, that's, that's, actually like the, that's like the beginning of a of an uh, when everybody got together. It's like a cohesive art piece where everybody's kind of contributing, even if they're not playing the instruments. They're right, contributing right. energy, and the dead would actually play what the people were doing, dancing or whatever. The, the dead started off as called, they were called the warlocks. So if you're looking for right. early early dead stuff, they're the warlocks, right. and then. I think they did actually, they smoked DMT and then they opened up some sort of book and then it was a picture, some image of like called the Grateful Dead and that's where they yeah. got their name from. Yeah. Some like weird esoteric experience. So yeah, pretty interesting I think stuff. it was actually the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I think you're I think, right. I think yeah, it was. I think you're right. I used to know that, but, um, but yeah, I remember seeing them and they would, uh, consult with the I Ching before they would start their concert. I saw that several times, you know, going there and, you know, the, yeah. the, the I Ching and they would do an I Ching and then they would launch into their, into their music. But yeah. Um, and then you see this thing where it was almost like, like we were talking about, almost like this competition to see who could push the, the bounds the farthest. And then I think again, the Grateful Dead kind of led the way because you look at their, their music, how it shifted between Live Dead, Anthem of the Sun, Aoxamoxua, into Working Man's Dead and, and American Beauty, where now suddenly they're, it's almost like they've come back to earth and now they're, you know, got their feet back in the ground and they've suddenly kind of got this almost country western flavor. But yeah. then, then you see this kind of whole rise of the whole, you see that in a lot of bands that, that in the early 70s kind of moved away from that experimental yeah realm that they were in and that coincided with people doing all of this tripping and then that went on for a couple of years it peaked between 69 and 70 i mean between 67 and 69 you went from hay ashbury to woodstock right? right so in 67 it's the phenomena is still isolated in these urban pockets by 69 it swept over the whole country and by 70 now you've got people who've gone through this experience going, we have to come up with a counter culture, a, another way of living. Timothy Leary sort of uh, expressed that whole uh, sentiment in, you know, turn on, tune in and drop out, drop right. out of the, of the, and a lot of people took that literally and began to do that and went back to the land and began to create communes and, and efforts to get out of the urban areas and away from, you know, um, you know, the old, entrenched ways of society to try right. to create something new right along with that cultural movement you see the shift in music to you know bands like poco and and the eagles and um you know the various bands kind of doing this country western type sound right right almost a more rural sound yeah. um and uh and then that kind of was the that bridged the gap and then of course disco came along and ruined everything so yeah i mean look <laughs> the other thing is is um the thing i really love about the dead is they would take they would cover a lot of songs but a lot of ones that they would cover weren't like popular songs they were like old uh um, yeah. traditional yeah. songs or like old old country songs and um when they would do that they would add their own little spin on it too i mean i know you rider is actually an old traditional song i think um uh what's the other one i'm thinking of um river uh oh big river big river i think that's a traditional song um so yeah there's oh, a lot they, of, they of them like that yeah 
Uh, oh, and uh, Brid- Bridge Ryan, who's a big deadhead, listens to our show, said they opened up an old dictionary. That's where the um, the name came from. An old dictionary? What dictionary yeah. would that be? Because it was I a quote. Uh, I think it was Duncan Wagnall's. Let me look this up right now. Just to They verify. said it in the... Did you watch that miniseries on Amazon Prime? Yeah, that's pretty good. Is it the other one? Is that the... No, that's... Oh, uh, no. Yeah, I, I can't remember the name. Let me see. Um, But anyways, yeah, I mean, it's it's awesome that you got to see him back then and experience that. Obviously, we're uh, unfortunate. Uh, oh, okay. Oh, a long, strange trip is the Okay, so so it's partially, you're kind of right, and Ryan's kind of right. Um, So it says uh, the band's name was The Warlocks, which I mentioned, and then Garcia spotted the phrase Grateful Dead, which the band later discovered to be an Egyptian prayer in a dictionary, and it just stuck. Oh, an Egyptian prayer in a dictionary, and it was then not the Tibetan, but the Egyptian book. Of right. The and actually, I, think I don't that think... that was the ultimate. Yeah, and then I don't know if... Uh, I forget what album it is, but the Grateful Dead had some sort of cryptic Egyptian message, too, at the top, and they changed the... I forget what it said, but it was this long Egyptian thing that they right now but there's a lot of esoteric stuff you know we talk about a lot of esotericism on the show the grateful mm-hmm. dead that's one thing i like about them too is there's a lot of esoteric themes throughout mm-hmm. their art mm-hmm. of their albums and their music and things like that um, well, one might be the best band name ever uh with the music aside the, the, that's a phenomenal name oh i know it's a great great name um yeah i can still remember the very i was in 10th grade i was a sophomore in high school it probably was spring of 67, and uh, I saw their very their first album, the one that, uh, I think it was just called Grateful Dead. I don't think it had a name. Yeah, it was. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, of course, I bought it because, um, to me, like, I'm like, oh, God, look at these guys, you know. <laughs> I knew there was something. Oh, yeah. At, that's, that, that period of, you know, spring and summer of 67, you know, I'm 16 years old, and I'm like, okay, uh, something's going on out there in the world. And <laughs> it was definitely clear to me, the music, you know, well, you remember the two two big hits that summer were by the Jefferson Airplane. Right. Somebody to Love and White Rabbit. And we all know that White Rabbit was what that was inspired by, right? That was um, uh, Grace Slick inspired by her trip and uh, – the uh, the story by Lewis Carroll, Alice in Wonderland. Right. So she interpreted the Alice in Wonderland story as a metaphor for the psychedelic experience. And then, of course, that became like a number one song all over North America. And then you had Jimi Hendrix come out that summer with Are You Experienced? Um, you know, and then, of course, the Beatles came out with um, uh, Sgt. Pepper's. What else? Oh, and then the Doors' first album, "Break On Through to the Other Side." So, I mean, the message was getting pretty loud and clear by '67. Yeah. And by '69, like I said, you know, a few million young Americans had had drank the Kool Aid and saw things that our 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 parents and our grandparents couldn't even begin to to conceive of. I made some futile okay. efforts to talk to my dad, but it ended in complete failure 
So this was what I was talking about. The original, the Grateful Dead, their original album from 1967, at the top uh, had a passage. Um, uh, it, it read from the, it was taken from the Egyptian Book of the Dead. It said, in the land of the, of the dark, uh, the ship of the sun is drawn by the Grateful Dead. Um, oh, yeah. And then they, the guy that did the album work changed it, I think, so you couldn't really read it or something. Something weird like that. I remember seeing that. I forget the exact story, but it was something along those lines. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of ringing a bell. That We're going to have to do a, a whole episode on the, on the Grateful Dead, man. This is some good stuff. Um, well, you know, I, I, I think that that time period was very important, and it's important to understand that. And... uh yeah, so I'm always willing to talk about that. Let's see. Randall reads the dead. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a new T-shirt, folks. Um, but anyways, but yeah, I mean, um, like I said, I just wanted to ask you about that because I do think, um, I think last time we were, because we were asking you about the gorge, I think the part one of this, you know, we had you on last time, uh, and you were telling us about the geological features and how the gorge was created because we were talking about seeing bands at the Gorge Amphitheater, which is one of the most beautiful um venues yeah. you could probably see a band at so yeah i didn't see a band there uh i never did see a band i saw bands at red rock amphitheater but i never saw anything at the, at the gorge but yeah. i've seen the gorge and yeah it would be a hell of a awesome place to see a uh you know to see a uh a concert absolutely um i think it would be fun let's see if i can do this let's see if i can share this since we were talking about it and this is what you're referring to right up here yeah there it is yeah that's what i yeah that's what i was talking about there it is the great uh, and the so yeah i remember this model. with the the little what monster Mo- monster yeah i don't know what yeah. that thing is <laughs> it looks like uh, uh what's that thing from from uh land of the lost or whatever or... <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? Those like uh, the old know. show, yeah, or the new one, Slee Stack or something. <laughs> Is that what they're called? You know, and you look at this. You know, they were all so young. You know, look at Bob Weir. Have you seen pictures of Bob Weir recently? Oh, and he, yeah, yeah. he looks uh, like an old cat. Like there's a cat that looks exactly like him. That keeps it's like a, a, a one of those like Persian cats with like a little look at beard looking thing. There's oh. one that looks exactly like him, that or a came, rat dog, if you yeah, will. Yeah, back, uh, back to back right. pictures. But uh, yeah, he's he's. I mean, he look. He still looks good though for his age. He like works out oh, every yeah, day. Yeah. I see him yeah, on yeah. Uh, social yeah. media. He's always working out, staying in shape for tour. They're still touring. So yeah, yeah I mean, uh, it's crazy to think that a band that was playing in the the mid '60s is for the people that are still alive, still touring to this day. So I know it. It's great. I'm I'm all for it. You know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, I was really saddened when um uh Char- charlie watts died because you know mm-hmm. i was listening to the stones from literally from their first album mm-hmm. you know all the way up through pretty much a, a, a stones fan through the 70s you know i kind of fell away but you know all of my middle school and high school years and even you know the years out of high school you know i was listening to the stones just like i was listening to the beatles and all that so it's always a little bit you know, sad when you see incrementally, little bit by little bit, the world that you grew up in going away, you know? Mm. 
you'll experience that as you oh, get I, older. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I get it, man. I, uh, yeah. I mean, things change, and even though we're not obviously that old yet, I do feel like we've already lost uh, a lot of the culture of what you know when we grew up and how we grew up and things oh, like yeah. that. So. And just wait till, you know, another 10, 20 years goes by. You're going to be looking back. And for me, you know, um, growing up, I was a, I was born in 51. So, you know, right in the middle of the century, pretty much. So I was coming of age just during while all that stuff was going on in the late 60s and early 70s. So that was really a prime time to be as old as I was during that particular epoch of history. Hmm. So I, in a way, feel kind of privileged. And, you know, I wouldn't have traded any of those events or those times for anything really even the bad stuff you know um but no, um sure things have changed remarkably you know we didn't have you know computers i mean you know it was a, it was very different from the standpoint of you know i lived in rural minnesota except for the few years i was in louisiana and um you know summer days it would be like hey me and my brothers or my buddies we'd head off we'd get on our bikes Yep, be home by dark, and off we'd go for the day, you know, very little, very little supervision. We were very much on our own from a very early age, you know, started working on farms, you know, when we're 12 and 13, doing, you know, hard lifting and, you know, all the kind of farm work. And I, you know, I start thinking about, to me, what I'm seeing now is that the younger generation does not, they're being deprived of certain kinds of experiences. That old that you know that my generation and the generations before me had, um, you know, because when I grew up, you know, I could walk out my front door at night and look up at just the brilliant array of stars, the Milky Way. That was part regular part of my growing up life, you know. Um, living on lakeshore, could go swimming, go canoeing, go fishing all the time, go camping, hiking, horseback riding, all of these kinds of things were the normal things to me that I you know, thought this was the way normal people grew up. Sure. But, and some, of course, still do. But, you know, what we did was we, we transitioned from a society at the early 20th century that was 80% agrarian and 20% urban. And we've completely flipped. Now it's 20, 20% rural and 80% urban. Hmm. So what has happened, and so, like, I came into the world kind of right in the middle of that, right? But what I've seen as I've, you know, gone through the decades of my life is, you know, we become more and more urban. And I think that this is playing a very critical role in, in segregating people from a, a substratum of reality that was very much a part of the existence of our ancestors. And even myself, when I was growing up, because I know kids that have, that are of college age that have never seen the Milky way. Yeah. No, and, and for, it's now there's no connection. Proven. Yeah. Right. There's no connection to the earth anymore. Now that, that's exactly right, Mike. That's exactly right. So a big part of what I'm trying to do with the next 10 years is to establish, you see, I've, I've been involved in education in many ways. I've, I've, uh, I've done lectures and classes for adults, but also for, for children and young people. I organized classes for 15 years for kids that were being homeschooled to teach them math and science and geology and ancient history and things like that. So I had uh, 15 years of experience um, working directly with trying to educate kids anywhere from nine years old up to about 17. That was the age range in which, mm. you know, so one of the things that I would do is 
parents would bring me their kids and I would, I would take them through the, the, the realm of mathematics from like beginning geometry up to pre-calculus mathematics and the introductory uh, concepts of, of calculus. So the idea is to prepare kids that were not going to public schools or private schools to go into, into to take a, a college level math curriculum. So this experience taught me a lot about education, and I, this is not the place to get into it, but I've developed some, some pretty uh, evolved ideas about how you educate kids. And it, for one thing, you get them out of these factories, these indoctrination factories, out into the real world. That's step one, right? And the thing I noticed with working with homeschooled kids is that they were very much being integrated into the adult world by the time they were adolescents. So that by the time they hit young adulthood, they knew how to act like young adults and they weren't still, you know, perpetual juveniles, you know, because now we've got a we've got a culture and an education system that almost imposes perpetual infantilism on kids, you know, and and doesn't prepare them, uh, you know, for the kinds of things that happen in the real world, Um, you know, how to grow food, how to fix a car if it breaks down, you know, how to fix a leak in your roof, how to plant a garden, all of these kinds of things, you know. Um, we're getting kids who don't know any of this. So I am working right now with a with a, a growing group of people that, that see the same deficiency I do. And we're developing ideas to create a new type of school where children, young adults, older adults are all can be together learning about some of these incredible things that that are a- available to us now, even the kind of things that we're talking about. Mm. And so one of the things that to, to expand this over the last three years now, I've started doing tours, bringing, I've brought now maybe over 200 people on tours to take them out. And we, we, we learn about geology, we learn about geography, we learn about rivers and lakes and forests and this learn to recognize the stars and we talk about the myths of the stars and this is going we've got i've got a tour coming up in march i've got another one coming up in june and another one coming up in september and the one in in coming up for june uh sold out within three weeks within two weeks it sold out we had to schedule another one it sold out we had to schedule a third one it sold out and now we have 100 people on the waiting list Mm. So what this has told me, what this has showed to me is what I knew instinctively a decade or two ago is that people are hungry for authentic learning and not the kind of bullshit propaganda and indoctrination that is now infecting the the, the higher uh, education institution. Would you say you're going to become a modern day Pythagoras and then we're going to see a new age of Pythagoreans or... Well, I guess I hadn't thought I'm of just, it that I'm way. I'm just but... kidding. I'm just kidding. I, I'm, well, not, I'm, not, I'm not insinuating you're creating an uh, acidic cult or anything like that. Well, yeah. I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm going <laughs> to... No. No, that's not what I'm doing. Everybody because must become unlike a vegetarian. Cult, <laughs> unlike a cult, I don't claim infallibility. And right. what I'm trying to do is get people, especially young people, to learn how to think on their own and think critically. And I always say, hey, don't believe everything I say. Put it to the test. You know, sure. I've thought about this. I've learned about it. Chances are I'm going to probably be right about this, but I might not be. You know, maybe I, maybe I don't know. what. Maybe I'm not right about Atlantis. Maybe there was no real existence for Atlantis. We're not going to know until we get those submersibles out. And by the way, I'm working on that. 
Um, yeah, but you're a so you're open minded to being wrong, and that's good. I think that if you anybody that has a hypothesis or theory, you should be willing to take you know you know a huge uh, uh, look at what you're what you're what you're presenting in the evidence says opposite of what you're saying or something along those lines. You should be able to look at the evidence and say, I'm wrong or I'm right, or maybe there's something here or whatever. And I think that that's, what's lacking right now is everybody want the age of the internet, you know, the modern day Akashic record, everybody thinks that they have all the knowledge because it's all at their fingertips. And you know, everybody wants to be that right person and Dunning Kruger effect has gone wild and everybody thinks Mm -hmm, they're mm -hmm. the best or they know the most or whatever the case may be. And I think that, if you don't know something, you don't know something. It's okay to say you don't know, and I don't think there's enough of that right now. But I think right. that you obviously do your homework. You've got a lot of data. You've got a, you've done all the research. So I think that's why people listen to you is because it's like, wow, this guy is prepared. This guy has put a lot of time into this. It's he's passionate about it, and he's putting I have. it and he's putting it out there. And I think that that's why, like I said, you get the response that you get, and uh, I think it's well deserved. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, we appreciate what you're doing, and that's why we have you on the show. And uh, obviously, keep doing what you're doing. Again, let's wrap it up here. We can do a Patreon with Randall here. If anybody's interested, we do have one up with him already that we've done in the past. But Randall's going to do this Atlantis um, presentation January 27th, 9 p.m. on his HowTube channel. I'll put the link down below. Is it going to be on your website too? Yeah, and it's a two-parter. So you buy, buy a ticket, you get both parts. What I'm suggesting, you know, if, you know, it's, I, we're trying to keep it no more expensive than going to the movies, but it'll be six hours of concentrated stuff. And once you get it, you'll have it forever. You'll be able to, you know, download it and, and watch it as many times as you want. What I'm suggesting, you know, if you're, if you're a little hard up, find a few like-minded people and have an Atlantis party. Mm. And watch Sweet. it. And, and a lot of the stuff that we touched upon, I'm going to dive into. And really, the, it was great that you asked the questions and brought up the issues that you did, Mike, because that's a lot of what I'm going to be addressing. And at the end of the six hours, I will put the question out there. Okay, on the basis of what you have just heard and learned, what do you think? Do you think that it was just an allegory, or is it possible there was a real place that fits Plato's description in his details? And I'll leave it up to the person because one thing I'm not saying is I'm not claiming, I don't want anybody to say, oh, Randall Carlson says he's discovered Atlantis and it's Hmm. such and such. No, that's not what I'm doing. What I'm doing is I'm saying, okay, I think that when you look at all of the possibilities that have been proposed for Atlantis that are out there, there's one place that conforms much more closely to his details, his specific information than anywhere else. And this is going back to what Vitaliano was saying. Do we take, first option, do we take Plato literally? And this is what I did. I thought, okay, I'm going to take this hypothetical approach. I am going to take Plato literally, detail by detail, and see where it leads me. And that is where I'm going with this presentation. I'm going to lay it out. I'm going to spell it out. When we followed Plato's very specific details, line by line through it, And then we look at that through the lens of geology, geography, oceanography, astronomy, mythology, and so on. Where does it take us? And by the end of that six hours, then I intend to propose the question, was it completely an artifact of his mind? Was it something to take seriously, but not literally? It was somewhere else. 
or do we look at it literally? Hmm. That's the question I'm going to pose at the end, and I'm going to leave it everyone to make up their own mind. However, based on the evidence that I plan to, to spell out, I have a feeling that a lot of people are going to go, hmm, Plato might have really been on to something. Hmm. But we'll see. You mentioned, a couple, evidence, you mentioned a couple yeah. things off air that piqued my interest, and I've, like I've told you my position a couple times tonight. So, I mean, I'm not saying I'll change my mind one way or another, but I definitely got me thinking a little bit more on the, the topic, which uh, uh, I appreciate. So, Well, I'm yeah. So I hope that you get a chance to, to check in. If not, you can always, you can always, if you can't, you know, get there on the, on the 27th, the 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 recording will be available. Who's so got my still... miracle? Yeah, <laughs> it's a, it's a it's a dead joke, and the dead oh. lot. If you say I'm looking for a miracle, you're looking for a free ticket to the show. Oh, well, you must have <laughs> two or three friends, right? It was no, a we joke. Want, we, it was we, a we, joke. We, I'm going to check it out. Listen, I I promise you, I promise you that any revenue that I make from this is going to a good cause. And, awesome. and the cause is basically whatever we can do to get more of this research together and get it out there to a wider wider audience. And ultimately, like I said, I am laying, I am establishing uh, the the outlines of an infrastructure for a new, for a literal physical infrastructure for uh, that would serve the purpose of these new educational ideas. No, absolutely, and, and actually. And you're going on Rogan too soon, right? What date is that? February fourth. February fourth. He's going to be on Rogan. Well, doesn't he might might not be on February fourth because I don't know if he does live anymore. But it'll probably be a couple days right. after that, if not. So. Right. 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 Um. So that'll be interesting. You haven't been on in a while. I'm excited to see. Yeah, uh, it's been three or four years. The yeah. Last time I was on was the the big debate with Michael Shermer, and wow, I was, was on there with with Graham. That was a, that was a great episode. Absolutely. Yeah, I felt that that was I'm looking a... forward to that. And Michael mm-hmm. Shermer just looked terrible for being. If you think you're a skeptic, you better go in with your your, you know, your stuff with in your order. Du- with your ducks in a row. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah, he he did not have them in a row. Um, based on all the stuff that he was writing in that magazine about Graham and the, all the false yeah. statements and comments. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. And then they got the guy on the phone and you were talking with the guy and you were blowing that guy's mind on the phone. And, uh, yeah. Well, I think he came on, I don't know, expecting to hear some new age woo or something. And yeah. then I started throwing some serious geology at him and I maybe caught him off guard. I don't no, know, that's but, that's uh, good. Again, you've done your homework. You've got the data. You've done the research, and uh, that's uh, that's where you got to start with it. And uh, like I said, we appreciate you taking the time. Uh, we're gonna record a short Patreon here because I don't know how much much longer he has, or how Maurice looks like he's uh, fading fast. away. Um, but uh, yeah, so again, everybody go check out Randall's website. I will put the link to his Atlantis uh, presentation uh, down below as well. And uh, listen, man, we really appreciate it. And, thank you, sir. Uh, yeah. My yeah, pleasure, guys. It's been fun. Thank you for your time and your, sharing your uh, expertise and your opinions. And uh, we'll get into some more stuff. And um, I know we didn't get to all the stuff we wanted to talk about, but uh, we'll get we'll get to that next time. And, uh, 
If anybody's interested, we are going to record a Patreon. Again, we've got one up there already from last year where he gave us a sacred geometry lesson. If you're interested, go to patreon.com slash podcast for just $2 a month. You'll get exclusive guest episodes and segments. And we got tons of stuff on there. We are on Discord. If anybody's interested, come chat with us on Discord. Um, also, go check out our Public merch store. I've got uh, some designs I created there. Um, cool stuff. And uh, one more time, indrasweb.org is live. This is a social media platform we created to connect open minds. So if you want to speculate, hypothesize, theorize, perfect place to do it. Set up a profile and uh, join up. Um, and uh, one more thing, just to mention again, Maurice and I are in the editing phase of our first documentary. Uh, we've got a lot of big names and a lot of little names too. It's going to be a nice mix of uh, everyday people and professional researchers. So look forward to that. We should have a trailer sometime, hopefully soon. I got to get some stuff in gear here in the next few weeks and hopefully we'll have a trailer and then we'll have one of the guests on to, uh, announce it. So look for that. And, uh, yeah, that's it. We love everybody. Uh, stay safe out there and, uh, we'll catch you next time. Peace. Peace. Good night.